Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning, we have with us Lance Robinson. Thanks for being here, Lance. Well, it's a pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. Lance, uh, the way I came to know about you was through a class called The Presidency and the Constitution in the fall of 2009. The professor for that course was one Joseph M. Bissett. Uh, he required this book. Um, let's make sure the Golden Gate Bridge doesn't get, it, get rid of it. This book is called The Constitutional Presidency. It's uh, edited by Joseph M. Bissett and Jeffrey K. Toulis, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And you wrote, the, and it was required reading for us, you wrote the chapter called Constitution, oh, sorry, let me get the chapter correct. <laughs> Uh, Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, the constitutional foundations of the modern presidency from page 76 to page 95, I think it is. And uh, now at the time I had just begun the, the academic study, the formal academic study of the presidency. It was the first time I was thinking about it from a constitutional lens in any serious way. And of course, if you're taking uh, Professor Bassett, you are thinking about it in a serious way. <laughs> um, but he had remarkable things to say about that essay. And, and, and he uh, mentioned you and that you had been in the Air Force, or actually you were in the Air Force and um, uh, while you were studying at Claremont. And so I remember that conversation uh, in his class and uh, a few other times that we talked about it through the years. And um, I thought, well, what a great person to have on the podcast. So welcome. Thanks for being here. No, you're welcome. Now you're uh, retired from the United States Air Force. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. For well, probably about 18 years now, I guess. And you were a fighter pilot, is that right? Uh, actually, I was uh, uh, not a pilot. Uh, okay. I was uh, a navigator, uh, but navigator. I, I flew back seat of the F-4 Phantom. Uh, we called us weapon system officers or weapon uh -huh. system. So yeah. a widow. You retired yeah. as a lieutenant colonel? Yes. Wow. So 20 years, pretty much, you, you were in? Uh, about 23 and a half. 23 and a half. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, thank you for your service. What's uh, it, so, so when a navigator, what's a navigator do? Um, well, honestly, in, a, in an airplane like the F-4, we're more of a, a co-pilot and systems operator, if you will, than a navigator. Uh, a typical navigator, uh, well, is responsible for navigation. Um, in the larger planes, uh, things like B-52s or transport planes, um, they 
will do things like celestial navigation, uh, other, other systems type navigation uh, as an aid and assistance to the pilots. Um, we do the same thing. Uh, it's much more systems uh, oriented. Um, and the, uh, but also uh, we uh, operated the radar uh, for you know, air, air defense or air uh, offensive work uh, as well as the other systems. So we had a good deal to do with uh, setting up the systems to drop bombs, uh, to fire missiles, uh, to uh, prosecute uh, air intercepts, things like that. So um, uh, much more, like I say, in the, in the way of a co-pilot and systems operator uh, to work with the pilot to, to prosecute whatever mission it was we were given for the day. Oh, uh, you mentioned the F-4 Phantom, is that right? Yes, that's correct. You know, when I think of that, I think of the Navy, uh, that seems like a, am I getting this right? It was a world, was it a Vietnam era plane that flew off aircraft carriers? Uh, yes, it, or it originated as a Navy design um, and was designed for air intercept uh, and fleet defense operations uh, for mm -hmm. the Navy. Um, both in the, well, the Air Force then picked it up uh, from the Navy and adopted it uh, both for uh, air, air superiority work and relatively quickly also transitioned to uh, air to ground work, dropping bombs, uh, things like that, both in the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, but the Air Force very heavily used it as a, uh, a multi-role uh, fighter, uh, if you will. And um, so it, it, in Viet during Vietnam, it uh, eventually took over the role from the F-105 uh, Thunder Chief is, a, is the primary bomber in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Um, so, yeah, the, it was a fighter bomber. And uh, how many seats are in it? Two? Two. Two seats. Okay. So the navigator would be in the back seat? Right. That's correct. Okay. Wow. Um, does, it, does it break the speed of sound? Is yes, it, actually, uh, uh, it goes uh, to Mach 2. Oh, wow. So is that the fastest plane that you flew in? Uh, yes. Um, yes, it is. Did you serve in combat? I did. I was in the, uh, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War in 1991. Uh, flying out of Bahrain over southern Iraq. Wow. How many missions did you fly in, over Iraq? Um, 32. 32? Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> um, kind of a dumb question, but I, I have to ask. I have to ask. Somebody's wondering what that's like. So, yeah. Honestly, going into it, as we got our deployment orders, you know, I, I was looking at that as probably one of the most uh, you know, profound or defining uh, events in my life. Um, and after the war started, we'd been over there for some time. Uh, what I discovered was the. Uh, the military environment of the 1980s, the late 70s and 1980s, 
after Vietnam had developed a very robust um, system of training. Uh, we were very well trained. Uh, we had we were funded uh, to fly regularly. So we were very proficient in what we did and uh, out in the Nevada desert. Um, those types of experiences were, were extraordinary preparation for combat, which they were designed to do. They were designed to simulate that. Uh, and my view of it was that our training and the level of proficiency that we managed to maintain uh, made combat very similar to what we experienced in our training in the States. So instead of being kind of a, a, a difference in kind to anything uh, that I had done before, uh, it was really kind of a, about a 10% increase in the level of intensity of what I'd experienced. Um, so I was very surprised that uh, um, the combat did not necessarily take me by surprise that it didn't uh, throw uh, a huge new challenge in my face that we were well prepared uh, to go in and do what we were asked to do. Uh, if that answers your question, uh, on a gut yeah. level, um, the first time or two flying in the airspace, it, it is very attention grabbing. Hmm. Yeah, that was a relatively quick war, right? Uh, we, yeah. We, uh, 43 days. 43 days. Okay. Did you fly primarily at night? Uh, I did. Um, we started off the war. Um, we were kind of rotating, but within the first week, it became apparent that, you know, interrupting a circadian rhythm uh, was not necessarily the best thing to do. So very quickly, we... Uh, uh, our squadron devolved into uh, um, pretty much day and night crews. I did fly a few days after that, but mostly I was flying at night for the last three weeks or so of the war. Um, when you're flying at night, uh, you're are you rely overly relying on instruments? That's it's probably a dumb question, but. Um, just a novice asking the question. Uh, well, it's a combination of both. Um, Is it the same as flying in the daytime in terms of how much you use your instruments? No, I would say there's more emphasis on the instruments at night. Um, but uh, there is, a, a, unless you're um, in the weather, and we yeah. did experience some pretty significant weather at times over there. Um, were were but, you ever uh, scared? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that comes with the territory. Yeah. Um, now tell us about how you wanted to get into the air force. What was, uh, did you grow up wanting to be in the military or was that something you developed in college? Uh, as a young boy, I, my dream, uh, was to be a fighter pilot. Uh, so Probably from the age of 10 to 12, somewhere in there. Um, I had read some history of World War II. 
about fighter pilots, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the time and, uh, it captured my attention. That was kind of my dream. I wanted to fly the F-104. Um, so I went through various changes, um, and it ended up, uh, I was living in Seattle at the time, uh, managing a credit reporting office, uh, you know, um, I think I'd like to do something different. And so I went down and I talked to the Air Force. And uh, at that point, I was uh, too old uh, for the typical profile to become a pilot. Uh, but they offered me a navigator position. And I thought, well, I can get pretty close to where I want to be uh, doing that. And so I signed on the line and, uh, you know, had a, I had a great career in my estimation. Oh, okay. So uh, you had already been through college. You didn't do ROTC or anything like that in college? Uh, no, I went through officer training school. Gotcha. The 90-day conditioning program. Uh-huh. So what did you major in in college? Uh, psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, at the time, the college I went to did not have a political science uh, major. Uh, so, um, uh, psychology just seemed to be I don't know, something that caught my fancy at the time. And, uh, I probably ended up having more political science, international relations courses and coursework than I did in my major. Um, but, uh, it, it wasn't productive. It didn't lead toward a, a degree, uh, at that school at the time. Well, where did you get your undergraduate degree? It was a place called Ambassador College in Pasadena, California, which has since closed. Did you grow up in Pasadena? Uh, no, I, uh, at the time we were living over in the San Fernando Valley, uh, in the Los Angeles area. Oh yeah. I know that area. Well, uh, taught for years at Cal state Northridge and oh. Pierce college actually too. Yep. Oh yeah would go right through uh, Pasadena quite often. Um, I know where the coffee shops are in case I have to go to the restroom. Um, <laughs> there's a uh, Pete's coffee. I don't know if you ever get back down there, but there's Pete's coffee. Uh, it's usually pretty good coffee, stronger than <laughs> Starbucks. So Is I'm it? a coffee drinker. Are you a coffee drinker? I am. <laughs> now, what's that like? Because everybody wants to know when you're flying and you're in that tiny cockpit, <laughs> how do you go to the bathroom? <laughs> um, well, there are, you drink coffee before. Of... I mean, what do you do? Do you do you have certain things you do to not have to do? That? Um, there's a couple of things, the air force. Uh, and I actually, I flew a tour with the Navy as well. Um, the, um, we have these things called piddle packs. Uh, and they're just, uh, you know, strong plastic bags with a sponge in them. Um, and actually in the uh, Navy plane that I flew, the EA-6B Prowler, uh, they had uh, what they call relief tubes. And so they uh, evacuated through the bottom of the airplane. Um, ah, okay. So they actually had a mechanism to, uh, to deal with that situation. And how do you stay hydrated? Uh, is there, can you drink? Do you have something to drink while you're up there or? Um, 
most of us typically carried um, some kind of water flask. Um, I found that uh, Hershey's chocolate syrup plastic uh, bottles uh, were a nice size that I could fit in my pockets, uh, held an adequate volume for most situations. Um, but, you know, very, you know, a lot of people picked up some kind of squeeze bottle like that uh, with a, a closable top, pop top on it. Um, and you'd put water in the chocolate syrup bottle? Uh, I, I, I drained the chocolate syrup. I, or actually, my kids would drink it, and then I'd, I'd <laughs> co-opt the bottle to, for my own uses. Wouldn't it have the chocolate's taste? Didn't that bother you? Um, no. At that point, if there's any lingering chocolate taste, it doesn't bother you. Okay. Uh, I guess you get a little bit of sugar, too. <laughs> um. So uh, you're in your, was it your mid-20s, did you say? You joined the Air Force? You joined a little bit later. Was it your late 20s? I was uh, 20, 25, 26 at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, did you go right into training after your 90 days? Did you, did you go right into flight training? Uh, yes, I, I, I think I took a week of leave or so, a week or two of leave. And uh, uh, Kind of collected some belongings and moved down to Sacramento, California, where they had navigator training at the time. Uh, there's a big Air Force base outside of uh, Sacramento. I'm I'm forgetting the name of it. Is that the base you're talking about? Uh, they had two of them at the time. Uh, McClellan is probably the one that still may be there. Uh, Mather Air Force Base was where I did my training, and I think that's a um, that, that base is named after light. me. <laughs> just kidding <laughs> the, the funny thing is is uh, i i my name is luke mather and i have air force bases named after both of my first name and last name that's what i tell people but of course uh, you know. yeah they call it mather air force base is that right yes yeah yep that's interesting because my last name is spelled the same way but we've always pronounced it mather m-a-t-h-e-r uh kind of like um I don't know if you are familiar with the Puritans, uh, Cotton Mather, Increase uh -huh. Mather, Richard Mather. Right. So in that line of pronunciation of the last name. Actually, I think I go back to Richard Mather, who was the first Mather in North America. But uh, yeah, so um, you went to Sear school? I you did. Call, you call it Siri or Sear? Uh, we called it Siri. Siri? Okay. In the Navy, we called it Seer School, and yeah. I, I I didn't notice the difference until I talked to some Air Force people, and they called it Siri, but they spelled it the same way: S E R E, Survival, uh -huh. Evasion, Resistance, Escape. Did you do that up in Washington? I did at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane area. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's pretty intense training. <laughs> <laughs> It, yeah, it has very interesting elements to it. Yeah. You made it through Sears School. Um, my, my training was down in Coronado in the Navy, uh -huh. for the Navy part of it. But I, I kind of wish I would have done it in Washington because it just sounds more fun up there. <laughs> just, just the, you know, was it, I forget where it is. Is it in, it's not in Eastern Washington, is it? Yes, it is. It it's, is. Okay. So is it dry? What's the climate? 
It's much drier from the than the part of the state west. Okay. West of the Cascades. Um, so it gets a it gets an awful lot of snow in the winter. Um, so it gets cold and a lot of snow, but it is typically drier uh, during the rest of the year. Uh, what time of year did you go? Uh, September into October. Well, I was oh. actually there twice. Uh, the, um, oh, really? They had uh, my first assignment was in the RF4, the reconnaissance version of the F4. Uh, and we did uh, missions uh, under what was called the Peacetime Aerial Reconnaissance Program. Uh, and so we had a special uh, resistance training program. Uh, going into that oh cool uh, if you're f- familiar with the history of reconnaissance aircraft at all uh there's been any number of incidents where reconnaissance aircraft have been shot down uh, one of the more recent ones well recent this is 20 plus years ago i think it is uh, 15 or 20 years ago the uh, the ep3 that was shot down by the Chinese, or actually it was a crash uh, the chinese pilot that intercepted them uh, uh, yeah mismaneuvered and uh, impacted their aircraft and they ended up uh, landing on Hainan Island. Right. Um, But there's special training to uh, train crews that are involved in those kind of activities uh, for dealing with those kind of situations where they might be in captivity and not in a wartime situation. Yes. So yeah, I, I I was lucky. I got to go up to two and programs there. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, and you were there when it would have been either hot or cold. It could have been either one, right? So. Yeah, it was pretty warm during the day, and it was pretty cold at night. Yeah. Oh well, that's tough to deal with. Uh. I went to, I went in, in August in the desert, basically in Southern California. So uh, that's Did what you go we to Warner Yeah. 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 We started in, you know, Coronado and then of course they, uh-huh. bus, they bus you out. So, um, yeah, I'm familiar with the EP3 incident. Um, George W. Bush's first major international crisis, as I recall. Mm-hmm. It was April of 2001. Um, I, I happened to know uh, some people that were on that plane huh. be- because yeah. I flew on reconnaissance missions um, similar to that that one. So oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was happy to see that they got back. In one piece. <laughs> Not the plane. The plane didn't come back in one piece, but <laughs> no. At least they got our people back. But yeah, that was an interesting uh, situation there. They exploited that for everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the uh, the PRC masters of exploitation and language games. The yes. ironic, the awkward thing for that crew. And that pilot, um, as you know, the the P three the EP three platform is a four prop mm-hmm. plane. So there's four propellers, 
one of the propellers, as far as I, I recall, went through the fuselage. I don't know how the pilot landed that plane, but what happened was the, um, um, well, were you active duty when that happened? I was. Okay. So you might've, you probably got briefings. Maybe you got briefings on this. I was just reading it in the newspaper, but what, from what I was able to ascertain was the, the pilot was quite heroic in getting that plane down. But the awkward thing was the Chinese fighter pilot that had gotten too close to the plane and bumped into the plane, basically what happened. Um, that <laughs> the base from which that fighter pilot came was where they landed. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So um, there anyway. Uh, yeah. Just awkward, just really awkward, but I'm glad they, they landed that plane. I can't believe it. A, a prop plane like that. Flying uh-huh. like that. Yeah. It's amazing. Everybody alive. Everybody made it alive. Anyway. Um, yeah. So. You know, my, my blood pressure just went up just, just thinking about that. So, <laughs> just the fact that they spun that story. Yeah. Cause you know, you know what happened. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the Chinese fighter pilot, he's flying a jet. Now it's an older jet. You know, it's like, I don't know what it was. I can't remember what it was, but it was some older jet. It's not like one of the brand new ones that we have. They, they have these right. kind of hand-me-down jets from like Soviet hand-me-down kind of jets. And, uh, but it's a jet, <laughs> you know, they have to slow down to hang out with the P3 and yeah. boom, you know what happened? They were saying hi, or they were flipping each other off or whatever was what happened. And then he just, you know, he flew too close. That's yeah. what happened. And then they blame it on us. It's like, it's like blaming um, a Lamborghini for bumping a school bus, Yeah, you know, on the highway. It's like, well, or no, no, sorry. The other way around a school bus for bumping a Lamborghini. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, anyway, Lance, um, you, at some point during your career, you said you were active duty in 2001 uh you ended up at claremont to do a phd now how did that happen how what was the story behind that Um, the uh so we came back from the the gulf war and uh i was flying what was called a wild weasel mission which is a suppression of enemy air defenses um and uh, we got the news well relatively shortly uh, within three to six months after we got back that uh, our squadron was going to be deactivated. Uh, they were uh, retrenching at the time. Uh, the Clinton build down, and uh, or shortly thereafter, we started the Clinton build down. And the uh, um, so it was a situation of well, find something else to do. And uh, so we were all scrambling to work assignments. Um, one of my goals going into the Air Force, uh, we'd been asked to kind of provide that biographical data at some early point in our career, what would you like to do in the Air Force? And one of the things I wanted to do is teach at the Air Force Academy. Um, and so um, I got in touch with the Air Force Academy and uh, 
they actually brought me out for an interview uh, and they sponsor uh, officers to go to master's degree programs. And so I was applying for one of those sponsorships. And um, in the end, I did not get a sponsorship, but they told me that they would be interested in uh, uh, bringing me aboard if I could get the degree on my own. So I went home. I was in Victorville, California at the time. And just down the hill at Cal State San Bernardino, they had a, a very nice national security studies program. And I went down and talked to the director there, uh, who has become a very good friend of mine uh, since then. And uh, so in the next nine months, um, I, I got married. Uh, I got a master's degree. Uh, and about a year later, I... Uh, moved to the Air Force Academy to, uh, to teach in the political science department there in 1990, the fall of 1992. Um, I spent a couple of years there, um, and they also sponsored people uh, to go get PhDs uh, to retain, remain on staff there. Uh, it appeared to me at the time that my flying career was probably over. Um, I had enough time in flying that um, they were mainly reserving spots for the young guys. Uh, and so I thought, well, I need to find a career track if I want to stay in. And so I thought staying at the Air Force Academy and teaching would be a good thing to do. And so I applied for one of those slots. And uh, after two years, uh, I thought I'd probably have to apply a couple of times. I ended up getting it after the second year I was there and uh, went out to Claremont. Wow. That's cool. Um, it was a rather fortuitous circumstance because Claremont's a rather expensive school. And yeah. um, uh, I had applied at other places and not gotten accepted for various reasons. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I'd applied at the University of Washington. Um, I had been living in Seattle. I liked the area. I had good, good school. And the response I got from them was uh, I had proposed, you had to propose a study topic. And what I had proposed was essentially the constitutional study of the presidency. And the response I got back from them is, uh, we don't have any faculty that are willing to sponsor that type of a study program. So, you know, we're not going to accept you into our program. Um, the, uh, so in the end, the Air Force did finally approve uh, um, me going to Claremont. Uh, and I knew uh, of, of several people that were there. Uh, Charles Kessler, among others. Um, but uh, uh, I quickly became acquainted with uh, Professor Bissett uh, after I got there. And uh, I studied under him, under he and Charles Kessler primarily uh, for the three years that I was there. Uh, and the two of them were the, uh, the, the two primary members of my PhD uh, committee. Who was the third member of your committee? Oh, I had his name on the tip of my tongue. He was a he was a political theory professor at Claremont McKenna College. Uh, he was an Alan Bloom uh, student, oh. uh, a tall guy, uh, bald, um, and his name is just coming to me right now. Uh, that would be um, oh man, I, I can I can picture him. I think well, it could have been one of two people. Blitz. Uh, no. Uh, okay. Uh, Blitz was relatively recently arrived at the time I was there. Uh, I did do some work with him, yeah. but a lot. I think uh, I know who you're talking about. Um, 
Yeah, his name escapes me too. <laughs> but I remember speaking with him. Yeah. I think I know who you're talking about. Um is he still there, you think? Um Might I don't retired. know. I, I would presume he's a good chance he's emeritus. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. At this point. Yeah. Well, uh, so you um you had been in the Air Force at how long but by the time you uh, went to go get your master's at Cal State San Bernardino? About eight years, eight, nine years. Okay. So you were a uh, captain at the time? I was. I, I had just been uh, promoted to major or selected for promotion, and I actually get a um, penned on major that first fall in 1994. Oh. That's a big deal. You got, you got major early. Yeah, right? that was a that, thing. that would be early, right? Actually, I was right on time. Oh, okay. Nine years is no normal for a major. Uh, let's see. I guess it would have been uh, at that point, by the 90 fall of 94, it would have been 10 years. So I guess I, okay. It was That's right around the nine, 10 years moved out right. there. Right. Okay. That's right. On that time. was an interesting event. The, uh, so in, in the military, you typically have promotion parties where you sponsor, um, you know, food and drink uh, for your friends. So uh, I did the same thing with all my student friends. Um, and so I told them very carefully, you know, don't bring anything. We're going to have food, drink. This is on me because it's my promotion and all that. Uh, and they all showed up with stuff. Wow. They all brought uh Things because it's that was their habit of going to somebody's uh, place. They would they would bring a little something. So just, um, there was a little bit of a disjunction there in the uh, between the uh, the social communities. Uh, they weren't used to having things provided by the host completely. But it was uh, a fun time. Yeah. Now, when you said that you went down to uh, San Bernardino, where you were living in Victorville, were you stationed there, or? Yes, the former George Air Force Base up okay. in Victorville or gotcha. Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so I was I was driving back and forth for about nine months. So were you working on this master's full time or were you doing it on part time through, through um, after work? I was doing it after work. Wow, that's a that's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> you were making that drive and working at active duty and doing something else on base. Yeah, uh, it was, um, wow. I got married at the end of my first quarter. Uh, we got married uh, the day after we got married. Uh, we opened gifts and uh, said goodbye to family. And uh, that night I was writing a paper uh, to close uh -huh. out the quarter. Uh, and my uh -huh. wife told her friend when they asked, well, what's married life like? She says, I don't know. All I know is I've got a, a new roommate that's never there. Oh, man. Wow. So you got married as a captain or a captain just promoted to major? Yes. And then how far as was a captain? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How far was the the uh the difference between the base and the the campus? How far of a drive was that? I think it was uh probably in the range of 30 to 40 miles. Um, 
there were two different locations. They had a satellite location out at March Air Force Base in Riverside. So it would take me about 45 minutes going to San Bernardino. It would take me right in an hour or a little bit over that to go to the Riverside campus. And George Air Force Base was the other base? George was where I was stationed, uh huh? Okay. So it would take. So what was your how how uh, what was your day like typically uh, that time? Were were you what time did you get up and what what time were you working on school? What time were you working on stuff on the base? Um, you know, I'd usually get up uh, probably five thirty six o'clock in the morning to be at work at seven thirty. Uh, a uh, typical day would be 7.30 to 4.30. Um, then um, I would, uh, a lot of times I would just leave from the base and drive down the hill. I'd change clothes, drive down the hill. Uh, and then uh, the um, classes, I believe, if I recall right, were 6 to 9 p.m. Uh, and so I'd get home somewhere close to 10 o'clock at night three nights a week. Uh, there was one quarter I did four courses. That was four nights a week. Um, that was, that was really busy. And the commute time was, uh, you only had an hour and a half to commute and get dinner. Uh, yeah. was that, was that pretty close? Was that cutting it pretty close? Um, yeah, I usually made it, to, I guess the big uh, factor was, the traffic you know if there was okay. any traffic slowdown but usually it worked out all right you must be a very fast reader how did you do all that reading and writing papers and stuff like that uh, did you do uh, did you just spend your whole saturday doing that or or were you able to squeeze it in at lunchtime or um i did do so when i had free time at work um i, I would do some there as it would, as i had time available um, but primarily it was at nights and, uh, the nights I had off, uh, my wife and I made a deal. I, I told her, I asked her, what day would you like? And she said, well, I'd like Sunday. So, uh, all day Saturday, I would spend uh, reading and writing. And then Sunday we would try to do something together as a couple, uh, try to at least act like we were married. <laughs> That's quite a commitment is what I'm, I'm getting at. It's it just breaking it down for people to see. Uh, you're getting up at five thirty, five, something like that, getting into work at seven 30 on base, uh, full work day there, then six o'clock is class time. And it's not on the same base necessarily. It's probably not on that base. You got to drive somewhere, yep. change, get dinner, uh, deal with traffic. Then you have three hours of class time and did you ever take a class with Erler, a guy named Erler there? Um, no, I actually knew Ed Erler from a uh, previous experience at Claremont. I went to Claremont for a year oh. uh, after uh, undergraduate school in 78, 79. Oh. I did some study with Harold Rood and Harry Jaffa. Oh, uh, is that right? No way. And cool. so Erler was, um, I believe he was, he was either recently uh, graduated or he was uh, finishing up his PhD program at that point. He, and there were any number of people that were circulating in that community that uh, uh, people like Larry Arn, Chris Flannery, Ken Masugi, um, 
Ed Erler. Wow. Uh, all the big famous Bill names. Shram. So you knew all those guys as, as a student? Uh, yeah, they were, they were kind of the generation ahead of, ahead of me. Okay. And, uh, um, I mean, we had a fabulous community uh, down there. Wow. So they were kind of sponsors and mentors uh, to us younger folks. And, uh, uh, and obviously many of them have gone on to very significant accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you went to ambassador college in Pasadena, which is just down the 210 from Claremont. Uh-huh. Then you spent a year at what was it Claremont Men's College at the time, or was it Claremont McKenna? No, it was Claremont Graduate School. Oh, okay. That's you spent a year there. Yep. During your undergraduate time? No, this is after I graduated. Oh, after you graduated. I yeah. got you. So you spent a year at CGU already. Okay. Wow. So that's where you met Jaffa and all those guys right. are. So I don't know if you know Chris Flannery, who's uh, back at Ashbrook Center, I think, right now. And um, I know uh, his voice. Uh, I hear his voice on the podcast. On his yep. podcast, he tells those stories. Yeah, he had, he was uh, one of my political science professors at Ambassador College, and he had introduced really? wow. me to uh, the Jaffa School, and um, so uh, was he had, was one of the folks that encouraged me to go to Claremont uh, after I graduated. Wow. Okay. You took Chris Flannery as a professor. So this is before the Air Force. Oh, yes. <laughs> you were what, 22, 23? Uh, yeah, about mm-hmm. yeah, 21, 22. So you had Chris Flannery. Did you have, did you ever have a class with like Harry Jaffa or anything like that? I did. I had, uh, um, a, a couple of different classes with him. The, the, the first semester I was there, he was on sabbatical uh, and he did some stuff in the evening, uh, just kind of a seminar type activities. He'd just gather students and talk about stuff. When he was on sabbatical? Uh, when he was on sabbatical. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like something he would do. Yeah. And then that spring semester, I had two courses with him. Really? Wow. Do you recall what those courses were? Uh, now I would have to look at, look it up again. One of them philosophy was, courses. Was like, okay. It was like Socratic dialogues or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was, uh, uh, the basic political philosophy course, kind of an introduction to political philosophy. I'm not, I don't think that was the title of the course. Um, but it was a, a dual credit for uh, Claremont McKenna College and Claremont Graduate School students, uh, and so it was a it was a mixed audience there, which was quite interesting. So those guys like Arn and uh, you mentioned some other names earlier. Those guys were students. Were they students at the time? Yeah, they were all uh, pretty much done with their coursework and working on their PhD projects. Uh huh. That's cool. Um, did you ever know a guy named Michael Yulman there? No, I did not. Okay. I think at that point he might have uh, uh, been um, out te- either teaching somewhere or, or working in the D.C. area. 
I think he did a lot of years in the, in the DC area, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. Was, um, what year were you at CGU, do you think? I was uh, initially there 78, 79. Okay. And then 94 to 97. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Ullman had left by that time. I think he graduated in 1978 with his PhD. Maybe, maybe. it was either 78 or 79, but he would have been working on his dissertation by that time. But yeah, he had just been in the Ford administration pretty high up under Ford in the justice department. He served uh -huh. with uh, Antonin Scalia actually. In the, oh, really? In the, yeah, yeah, yeah. He served as uh -huh. assistant. He was assistant attorney general for legislative affairs. I think it was, uh, wow. which is a, which is confirmed by the Senate. That's a Senate confirmed position. Um, I guess he was able to get that Senate confirmation pretty easily because he had worked for a Senator and he knew a bunch of people. So, yeah. And then I think in 1980, 81, he came on staff at the white house when uh, Reagan uh -huh. was elected um yeah he was my mentor for 10 years michael yulman oh really yeah yeah so the, the very hit... did a conference with him mm -hmm. one time um in the 90s at some point uh the uh and you know just an extraordinarily nice man yeah and very intelligent and thoughtful as well yeah wonderful writer wonderful speaker one wonderful uh wonderful lecturer um just and he had a broad ranging interests um but uh he was he and Bissett were the first guys that brought me into the presidency because he was my second professor at claremont i took the class called the modern presidency with yulman i took Bissett first so uh -huh. i had Bissett and then and two different very different um styles of teaching uh -huh. yulman is i would say a little more dialogical um i don't know if he gets that from jaffa or whatever i know jaffa had kind of a profound influence on him uh -huh. um and beset as you know would lecture um he could lecture for three hours and uh -huh. and it was the kind of lecture that you didn't want to miss. Um, at least I didn't, I, 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 I would take notes for the entire time. I mean, there would be like question and answers and stuff. Um, he did want class participation, but he could easily hold the lecture for two and a oh, half yeah. hours. You know, yeah. and, um, I, I had come in after the military and I, <laughs> I was, so I was a little older than some of these kids in the class. And, um, and, the the uh one of the students uh, said well the way the class was graded was 60 percent was the final exam uh -huh. and um <clears throat> so it was i think it was around thanksgiving um one of the students the younger one said are we going to get a study guide and <laughs> um <laughs> and and um <laughs> beset he he he's not a um 
he's not a smart Alec at all. I mean, he, he has yeah. not a sarcastic bone in his body. As far as I can tell, I, I mean, it never came out in class period at all. So, so that's why I have to, I have to set it up this way so that, you know, there's no sarcasm in this at all, but uh, totally straightforward answer to that question. Uh, Bissette said, Oh yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll save a few minutes uh, at the end to talk about, you know, the final exam and how to prepare for it. So, uh, you know, we, I was like, I, I think we had skipped a break at that point. It was a three hour class and I was, I had to go to the bathroom and I was like, I was nervous to miss anything. I was like, what am I going to miss? Uh, so I I'm taking notes like frantic and finally it gets to like five minutes before the class is out and everybody's waiting to see what this, what this study guide is going to be like. And, um, you know, cause it's like George Washington to George Bush, you know, yeah. it's that it's the whole 200 and some years, uh, all these Supreme court cases, books, including your article in this book and other, other books. And, um, so, so Bissette said, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, um, you have to know everything. <laughs> Yeah. And he said, does that, does that help? Um, <laughs> that's your study. That was yeah. the study guide was you, you have to know everything. And here's the and, syllabus. And everybody syllabus. was looking at, like, <laughs> you could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. And I loved that answer. I, 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 I was like, I, I was teaching a lot at the time. I was an adjunct professor at the time, uh, teaching at Pepperdine. Uh-huh. And I remember Pepperdine was in Malibu and I had, they had scheduled my final exam during that final exam. And I was so nervous about approaching Bissette, uh and just telling him my situation of, I'm a professor at Pepperdine, part-time professor. And these knuckleheads took my final exam time away. They, they scheduled on a different day than the class was and so i wasn't able to prepare for that i wasn't able to well he said he said okay well you'll you will miss it totally i said no i i could be late uh because i'm coming from malibu during traffic um but i will you know so i was two hours late to the exam and he said oh no no problem i'll stay the whole time you can have the whole time i i don't i'll just read a newspaper it's not a big deal but i had just battled all this traffic and i was so like you know <laughs> and uh, he gave me the envelope and i opened the envelope and that was the first time i was seeing the questions and i was like okay let's do this <laughs> so glad i was in the military i was able to cope with that stress yeah but uh you know that's interesting why I wanted to talk to you is because you you're in the military and you're going through class and you have this dedication to the material. Was it the, was the material itself just so interesting to you that you just had to do this or was it a career choice that you were making because you wanted to be a professor in the, in the air force? What was it that was driving you to, to do this master's degree at Cal state, San Bernardino and, and get that done while you're active duty? Uh, well, it was the prospect of teaching at the academy. I, I, I had a window. I had, uh, I had nine months um, to do it. And um, 
I had run through the, the scenario with the director there and he said, yeah, you can do it if uh, you really press it. Um, yeah. That's an extraordinary that, amount of time, uh, a short time to do a master's degree, I think. Yeah. So wow. yeah, it, a lot of the pressure was, you know, this, uh, the job at the air force Academy was on offer, but I had to get the degree in, in a year. And, um, uh, the second piece of that was, uh, just the, the personnel dynamic at the time was uh, the Air Force Academy slot was the best opportunity that I was aware of at the time. And uh, I did work some other assignment uh, uh, prospects and none of those came through. Uh, so it was a tough time to get a good job because uh, they were starting to draw down in terms of personnel. Um, so the just the entire career uh, progression element of that was another uh, um, el- was another piece of the pressure. So, but the, yeah. the Air Force Academy uh, prospect, the prospect of going there and teaching was, was very enticing to me, uh, and so I wanted to try to make that happen if I if at all possible. What is it about teaching at the Air Force Academy that that spoke to you? Was it the location? Was it the idea of teaching? Did you just love teaching or was it, um, something else maybe? Um, well, the reason I went to, uh, Claremont after I graduated college was, uh, that my college at the time was looking toward bringing me on uh, staff uh, to teach in a political science. So they were looking at building a, uh, a political science program there. And uh, the department chair uh, was looking to bring me on to, uh, to augment the staff there. Um, as it turned out, the year that I was at Claremont, uh, uh, the college gave up on their four-year liberal arts program and changed to a, a two-year uh, kind of divinity studies uh, okay. program. Uh, well, I guess they still had a four-year program. I'm sorry. It was a four-year program, but it was aimed all toward divinity studies. And just uh, for people that wanted to go to a, a church college environment um, and, and walk out with a four-year credential, even though it was not going to be an accredited credential. So it really became kind of a, a church social educational institution rather than uh, a more academic institution. So that opportunity uh, evaporated, uh, which is why I quit after a year. And because um, gotcha. at that point, I'm looking at, you know, Bill's Mount and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. not sure what I was going to do. So, um, so the, it was the element of teaching. I had been attracted to teaching for some time. And uh, I thought that it was enticing to think about teaching, you know, future officers in the Air Force. Yeah. Uh, and you know, political science was an area of interest to me. It's just I've, beautiful I've been, location, beautiful location there in Colorado Springs. Yeah, it is. It's uh, yeah. We we've lived there. We lived there for many years. Just moved up here where we are now, about a little over four years ago. Um, but yeah, we've enjoyed our time in Colorado Springs. Where do you live now? Do you care to say Loveland, Loveland, Colorado? Oh, north of okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm from Colorado, so I, I know How that. Are you? Yeah. I, I grew up in Littleton, Colorado. Oh, okay. Went to Jefferson County Public Schools, graduated from yep. Chatfield High School, which okay. is uh, 
the main arch rival of Columbine High School, and we all know that, unfortunately, yeah. from some other reason, for some other reason. But um, yeah, so uh, I spent many summers down in Colorado Springs. Down, uh, meant to, I've been to the Air Force Academy many times. Um, hiking Pikes Peak. Uh-huh. Um, spent some summers in Manitou Springs at a, a camp there. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, uh, th- this nine months to get a degree is, is fascinating. D- what degree, what year did you get your degree in your master's? Uh, 19, the summer. Well, it, it was awarded at the end of the summer session there in 1990, 1992. 92. Yeah. And did you have to have your degree in hand before you they gave you orders to the air force academy where did uh, they... they actually ended up giving me orders uh i did have to confirm i did have to get confirmation from the program at okay. san Bernardino that i had completed the program uh before they give me orders um mm. but uh i didn't have the degree in hand because the institution wouldn't grant a mid-term degree mm-hmm. um so there was some gotcha. question about uh, since the uh, Air Force Academy term began roughly, it usually begins August 8th, 10th or so. And um, the degree was going to be awarded toward the end of August, toward the end of the month when their summer term ended. Yeah. Um, so there was some question about whether I would actually go into the classroom initially or whether I'd just kind of <laughs> hang out until I got the degree awarded uh, and then uh, step into the classes allotted to me. Uh, in the end, they just allowed me to go into the classroom in anticipation of having the, de- the degree awarded. Uh, since it was kind of a pro forma, they knew it was coming. It was just a matter of getting it issued. They so had a was, letter. They had a letter from the department or something stating that you something like completed. That. Okay. I forget the details on that. So you had wow. The Air Force really uh, believed in you. That's great. Uh, how how soon before the term begins? does an instructor get have to to get orders and check in and and get get the billet started like how is it weeks uh, before or is it days before it was uh well we ended up moving the first part of july um okay sometime shortly after the fourth of july so several and- weeks before for orientation yeah, stuff like that. And then they have a, uh, um, they had about a, a week to two week uh, indoctrination program. Welcome aboard. Um, both they so part of it was institutional. You know, mm-hmm. welcome to the faculty, introduction to faculty, faculty responsibilities, things like that. And then yeah. they had a, a department level uh, uh, introduction, turn which was more focused on teaching. Um, you know, this is this is the environment you're going to be entering. Uh, this is how to handle certain situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how we administer uh, the the courses that you're going to be teaching, uh, and things like that. And uh, who's who's your supervisor when you're there? Is it is it a civilian or is it somebody that's is it a, is the dean a, like an officer or something like that? Uh, at the time you... I went there initially, um, 
the faculty was almost exclusively a, uh, we had a State Department civilian um, and a CIA uh, civilian in our, in our department. Some of the engineering departments had actual civilian uh, faculty members, um, but it was well over 90% uh, military then. Uh, over the years, they've transitioned. It's probably close to 25 to 30%, I think, now civilian faculty. So, yeah, my yeah it's, uh, it's, it's like it's really higher, a lot higher civilian faculty now. Yes. Why would that be, you think? Uh, I think part of it was an institutional decision um, to. Um, to bring in civilians. So there's an opportunity at least uh, by bringing in civilians to, uh, 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 to bring in people with uh, specific credentials, experience, so expertise. Um, there's also, I think, a, a personnel element to that in that it relieves pressure uh, on the service itself to provide officers uh, to staff uh, the institution. Um, among the academies, um, the Air Force Academy, especially in comparison with the, uh, uh, the Army Academy at West Point, um, the Army tends to bring faculty and staff members uh, from the, uh, among their best folks. Uh, the Air Force Academy tends to uh, keep their best folks on the career trajectory that they're on in their operational specialty uh, or staff uh, opportunities that, that, that facilitate uh, uh, and support their primary specialty. So there's less emphasis at the, in the Air Force, at least in my experience, uh, to draw from some of the best uh, folks in the Air Force uh, to staff, uh, to both train and educate the, the cadets. Um, so there's, there's a very distinct difference, at least between the Air Force and uh, the Army, uh, in the way they staff the institutions. That makes sense. Uh, what, what was your initial uh, sizing up of the students? How are the students? I, I loved dealing with the cadets. I think they're very impressive people. Um, they, come, they tend to be very accomplished people. Um, they tend to be very well-rounded people, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, they have, well, some of that's probably for some of them square filling. It takes this to get into a, a military academy. So I fill those squares. Um, but a lot of them are just very impressive people. Mm -hmm. uh, my impression is they have, um, kind of a vocational mindset, if you will, rather than an academic mindset. Um, so they have a professional or kind of vocational um, orientation to uh, the way they view their education. Um, my education is going to support uh, a professional end you know, in the Air Force. I'm going to be a pilot. I'm going to be a, you know, a, a maintenance officer, an intelligence officer, a, a procurement officer. So there's a professional element to that um, that... Uh, kind of moderates or mitigates pure academic uh, interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Sounds like it. So does that affect the way they do their homework and how much time they spend on it? And um, I think the institutional pressures are probably more of an emphasis on uh, uh, how they spend their time, how much time they're able to spend on that. Yeah. Most of them are going to uh, devote the time necessary uh, if they have it available. Um, they're like any place you're probably going to focus mainly on your major. Uh, and so a lot of folks are going to engineering. Um, so they have required courses in political science. Yeah. Uh, those folks would probably spend less focus, uh, on, uh, the courses outside their major that they're required to take. Uh, but they're still for the most part going to uh, take the coursework very seriously. They all want to get good grades because they're yeah. all rankings and stuff that goes into sure. class positioning and assignments and things like that. So uh, the pressures that the institution applies tend to uh, encourage them to be serious about their studies uh, regardless okay. if, they, if they can find the time to do that. Speaking of institutional pressure, I have to ask you this because I ask every professor, <laughs> uh, do you have, did you ever feel pressure to inflate grades from the institution <laughs> um no or the department um, either one no the uh uh i recall uh harvey mansfield uh in the past talking about these type <laughs> yeah. of things yeah c minus um, harvey and mansfield yeah and you know he eventually got to the point where he would issue two grades. He would give a student their real grade and then he would give uh, what he called an ironic grade. Yeah. Um, That's right. And I did. What pressure I felt was more personal uh, in that um, in a, an environment where grade inflation was a real issue. Um, there was a certain sympathy for my students uh, where I was grading them uh, in a less inflation in less inflationary uh, according to a less inflationary uh, standard. Uh, and so my students would tend to have on average uh, a lower grade coming out of a, a course where we had a wide band of students uh, taking the course. Uh, which is, uh, I think that's a situation that puts pressure uh, on a professor. It kind of gets back to Mansfield's uh, case. I think part of his uh, um, solution was I can't disadvantage my students because of the uh, foibles of the institution. Um, but at the same time, he wanted to maintain some honesty and integrity with his students by giving them uh, the real grade that they earned or deserved for the course. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I think uh, I always, uh, were you, uh, that's a very thoughtful answer. How did you, uh, how did Harvey Mansfield get on your radar? Oh. We had one of Mansfield's probably... students on this, on the podcast. Uh, he mentioned the same thing. He mentioned that he gives two grades john yeah. Yu, who teaches at berkeley oh right uh oh. was a was a mansfield I, student he mentioned that he he uh he mentioned that 
uh, Mansfield was particularly annoyed at the great inflation, but yeah. Um, I think probably uh, through some of his articles on, uh, mm-hmm. uh, on constitutionalism, on separation of powers and on the presidency specifically. Um, I used a lot of his material in my dissertation. Uh, uh, it's really kind of foundational for how to think about uh, um, those things. Um, and then several times for conferences. Um, so uh, I've had the opportunity to meet him, uh, actually. And uh, oh, wow, so there's cool. a, you know, a, a variety of things. But I think uh, the initial introduction was just from uh, reading his uh, publications. Uh, now, at the Air Force Academy, were, were you in charge of developing your own courses or did you, were they, was, was the syllabus given to you and you were expected to teach that? Um, there's, there are primary courses that uh, every cadet there takes. So at the time, initially, um, it was uh, an American government course. We actually had three. We had an American government course. Uh, we had a uh, uh, an international relations course, and we had a senior level course that was more policy oriented uh, and policy and national security oriented. Uh, that third course went away relatively quickly uh, after I, around the time I got there. Uh, and then you had the majors courses. Um, and it was all very structured. Uh, all of the courses were identified. You could occasionally get um, uh, an independent study type of course or, or a, a seminar, seminar type of course uh, uh, introduced for a semester onto the uh, schedule. That was pretty tough to do. Uh, so what you did have the leeway to do was take a particular course. So say like a national security policy course uh, and structure it um, the way you wanted to teach it. Um, you had certain overarching goals that you had to accomplish in teaching that course, but how you went about uh, accomplishing that, you had considerable leeway to do. But it is a very structured program there. Um, the catalog is structured, and um, uh, you, but you do have some uh, leeway in developing your syllabus for a defined course uh, to teach it in the way you would like to. I'm always amazed at just how structured the life at the academy is based on what I hear and what I read. I wonder how I'm always amazed that the students are able to do good work academically, I guess is how I'm, how I put it, because it seems like every minute is accounted for some way, somehow there. And it seems like there's not enough minutes to do everything. (laughs) There aren't really. Um, and so, I mean, they, like everybody, uh, they're faced with a time management problem. Uh, I think a lot of civilian students have a time management problem. Uh, yeah, it's selfish. Yeah, but How it's uh, gaming it's be, am I because there's lack of discipline. Yeah. Um, and so they don't have the option of choosing between computer gaming and studies. It's, <laughs> I have institutional duties and uh, yeah. study. Um, so I think they make the, those same time management compromises that other students do. It's just, they don't have the entertainment element that's competing with their studies and, uh, other responsibilities. 
No, that's interesting. I don't think I thought about that before. So maybe they turn out to be, well, I guess you could make an argument that either way, whether they're better students or not, I don't know. Depends on how much those kind of students need some kind of recreation. I guess it could be better because they're getting they exercise. They're getting yeah. the exercise. They do find ways to uh, uh, entertain themselves. Uh, I was the, uh, the officer on duty one night, uh, and the way this works is you have a senior cadet and an officer uh, that are on duty during the night to handle any situations uh, that come up. How often, how often would you find yourself having duty at night? Uh, probably once a year. Oh, okay. That's not too bad. Not too bad. So it's so, not like once a month or something. No. Uh, in a previous iteration, uh, we did have an incident where some cadets were playing around with knives in their room. One of them managed to get stuck with a knife in his uh, buttocks. Oh. And, uh, and the story they came up with is, uh, yeah, the knife was uh, they were using to cut some deli meat or something. They set it on the, the table or fridge and he sat on it. Um, and they stuck to the story. Nice. It was not a compelling story. Um, but in this other incident, um, uh, we were doing, one of the things you did is you did a, a survey of the institution. So you walked the dorms, you walked the facilities just to make sure that things were in order. Um, and so I'm with this young lady who's a cadet squadron commander and, uh, walking through a dorm that has had still at the time linoleum floors. Um, and we turned a corner. Uh, into a hallway where they'd use towels to block the doorways and the ends of the hallway and flooded it so they could do carrier landings on the linoleum floors. <laughs> and this young lady that's with me gets this momentary horrified look on her face. Like they weren't supposed to be like she, she understood they weren't, this was supposed to be a safe hallway tonight. They weren't supposed to be doing this. Um, and then she turns to me and says, well, sir, how do we handle this? Uh, and I turned and looked at her and I said, walk carefully and try not to fall. Uh, <laughs> so all of these cadets are standing at attention in their doorways in this flooded hallway as, as we march through, you know, the inch or inch and a half of water uh, on the dorm floor and uh, just exited the area. And so they do find ways to entertain themselves that's funny well carrier landings at least they got the service right for crying out <laughs> loud i had to get that in there um so now you're uh you're at the air force academy you're teaching your courses having a great time um and you developed a desire to get a phd was it was this a necessity to make lieutenant colonel or how and I'm, I'm interested how do you make lieutenant colonel at this point like that had to be on your radar if you're going to retire you have to be promoted so how do you do that how do you what do you need to accomplish um, I, I think uh, um, promotion was one element of consideration uh, again this is a time uh, this is now the Clinton years and there's a significant drawdown going on. So uh, again, I'm looking forward and I'm anticipating that uh, I'm probably never going to buy it. So what am I going to do in terms of um, a career track? Uh, 
and I had enjoyed my time at the academy. Uh, the is, is this a three-year is this so, a three-year billet after your master's? Um, it was actually a four-year billet. Four? Oh, okay. Um, and um, so um, I applied for the the PhD program, thinking that uh, um, at the very least I would come back to the academy and have the opportunity to probably finish out my career there or, or maybe go away and come back, that that would be my primary uh, specialty would be teaching at the Air Force Academy, maybe an interruption uh, or two. Uh, so uh, there was part of it was just interest. I, I, I was interested in doing that. And part of it was professional, um, you know, survival in the Air Force at the time. It was a career track uh, that would potentially get me to retirement. And um, so then there was a selection process for getting the PhD program, getting yes. into that and getting stationed wherever you're doing your PhD program. Right. So they, uh, um, so they have the departments that, um, all the departments have educational improvement tracks. Um, so you apply within your department and it's a competitive process. Um, like I say, I was surprised that uh, my very first year that I was selected. Um, I had figured I started that second year because I thought it's going to take me at least two to maybe three years uh, to get approved for a slot. So I was really quite surprised that uh, during my second year there of a four-year tour that um, I, had, I was selected uh, for the PhD program sponsorship. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I was pleased by it, but I was a little bit surprised that it happened as quickly as it did. So that interrupted your orders there and you went, right. you didn't finish the, that four-year tour and you went to Claremont? I went to Claremont. And so that's a three-year uh, tour for the PhD. That's <laughs> that's that's a tight squeeze for a phd i mean every minute is accounted for you're now the phd version of the academy grad like you or the yeah. academy you know so so you how how long had you taught then how many semesters had you taught b before you were selected for the phd um i taught uh i taught four semesters and i taught one summer program so and then, it's something along the line of five semesters. And then they moved you out to Claremont, uh, yep. the beginning of what would have been your third year. Yep. Oh, okay. So you had some quality teaching under your belt. That was, must've been nice to have that well, teaching. I like to experience. think it was quality. <laughs> <laughs> I at least had teaching under my belt. Yes. <laughs> Your master's at uh, Cal State Bernardino, what was it in again? National Security Studies. National Security, okay. So was that does that count as a political science-y kind of thing? <laughs> at, yes, at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Since then, um, somewhere in the 2000-aughts, they actually started a, uh, um, a cross-department, multidisciplinary uh, national security uh, degree. Okay. Uh, All right. That's where Erler finished his career. Uh, I think he San Bernardino. Yeah. I think he retired uh -huh. from there. Um, 
Now, uh, you you show up at Claremont, so you must have been taking a full load, right? Yep. Full load, like four courses, something like that? Yeah, it was about four courses a semester. How long did it take you to complete coursework? Um, wow, that's a lot. I think, uh, well, I, it took me four semesters, um, okay. but I was essentially done in three semesters. Uh, my fourth semester was a lighter load. Uh, and then I, there were some pre-dissertation, um, yeah, comprehensive exams, proposal writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the fourth semester, uh, I, I spent, uh, I had a lighter load and I was working on my dissertation proposal that fourth semester. And so then that summer after the fourth semester, I, uh, uh, uh wrote my proposal and got it approved and then, uh, started, uh, the dissertation, uh, essentially the third year, the fall of the third year. And you took, uh, did you take the comprehensive exams? Yeah, I took that the fourth semester. That's that, uh, uh, my second spring there. I took the comprehensives. Wow. That's quite an accomplishment, um, for that. The, Cause the, now what was your favorite course? that you took? Uh, actually, actually, one of the ones, the more enjoyable ones, uh, was a course that was co-taught by uh, Joe Bissett and Charles Kessler. Uh, it was on, uh, I believe it was 18th century English political thought. Um, and that, that, was, that was really quite enjoyable. Um, I really enjoyed the presidency courses that, uh, that Joe taught. Um, that was really my primary area of interest at that point. Uh, I, I, I knew going into the academy um, or going into Claremont what I wanted uh, to do my dissertation on. Uh, oh, wow. Fairly, you, you already knew that. Yeah, I had taught a course on the presidency at the Air Force Academy my last semester there. Okay. And... Uh, I was using a book by Sidney Milkus and I think Michael Nelson uh, on the, uh, the yeah. presidency. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the treatment of Theodore Roosevelt, there was one particular sentence where in, in the way that they described the stewardship theory of the presidency uh, that just really struck a nerve with me. And my, I, at the time, I thought, well, that's that's not constitutional at all. That's really not presidential or executive at all. And so out of that, the two elements that came was I wanted to do work on the constitutional presidency uh, aligned in some way with uh, separation of powers. Gotcha. So those were the two elements that I came to school with the thought of I, I, that was going to be if I could get it approved was going to be the core of my dissertation effort. And as it turned out, uh, that all worked out quite well. Uh, and so I had a pretty tight focus going in uh, and designed my program to facilitate that particular uh, area of interest. I'm going to pause it one moment.
this is all very interesting to me. So it's fascinating because it's such a different way of doing a PhD and teaching. And it's, yet it's so, it's, uh, it's just a compelling story to me doing your PhD in three years under pressure from the air force. Um, but you're getting paid, right? You're getting your full right. allowance and stuff like that. Did you live in Claremont? Yes, we did. We lived up uh, uh, toward the foothills up off of Mills Boulevard or Mills Avenue, I think it was. Um, just, uh, well, I guess it would be what? Uh, so East baseline. You're 10 minutes from campus. Yep. Something like that. Um, what, what did your orders look like? Did they, it, did it say you're, were, were you attached to a base that you had to check in at, or were your, were your orders just to the school? Um, did so you actually, a, did sorry, you as a supervisor, okay. um, you're assigned to, uh, the air force Institute of technology, uh, which is headquartered in Dayton, Ohio at Wright Patterson air force base. So that's your formal unit of assignment. Uh, administratively, I was assigned uh, to Los Angeles Air Force Base, which uh, was uh, yeah. part of the Missile Command, the Space and Missile Command. Um, so that's where my my orders were to, in terms of a geographic location, I was assigned administratively to that base. Um, and I know exactly where that base is. I've, I've passed by it many times. So it's really unusual um, assignment uh, element. So you're you're at the school uh, assigned to a, to a geographic base, but your unit is uh, geographically dislocated from the base you're assigned to administratively. Yeah, and LA Air Force Base is nowhere near Claremont. <laughs> it's, no, it's over by the ocean. Right. Yeah, I I pass by it a lot. I think it's in El Segundo. Right. Or something uh -huh. like that. Um, yes, I would pass by it a lot uh, because I taught at Loyola Marymount for over a decade uh -huh. and, and LMU is over there. And uh, why was I passing by LA Air Force Base? I think I would pop off the highway and grab a coffee and I would take side streets. Uh -huh. and, and, and so you'd, you'd pass it on the side streets there in El Segundo. Um. So did you ever have to go into LA Air Force Base for administrative stuff? Oh, yeah. Probably two, maybe three times a year, you'd have to go down there and do something. Like a physical exam or something? or like a Physicals uh, or you know, some kind of order. So uh, among other things, when I uh, was promoted, I had to go down there and handle uh, all the promotion, the administrative elements of, of uh, processing the promotion and uh, whatnot. Um, so it's, it's real, it was pretty inconvenient. And then yeah, I actually finished my dissertation. I handed it in on uh, April fool's day in uh, 1997. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm done. And, uh, so I notified my folks at the air force Institute of technology. And I said, do you have orders for me? Uh, cause it had kind of been slow rolling. I should have had orders in hand. Uh, I was expecting orders back to the Air Force Academy, and uh, 
this kind of process has been dragging on. No, we don't have orders for you yet. We don't have orders for you yet. So, well, I turned in my dissertation. And then there was this mad scramble because, well, oh, so, so you're done. Yeah, I'm just waiting for graduation now. Well, that doesn't mean anything to us. You know, if you're done, then something has to happen. Uh, and they didn't have any orders for me. So what they did is they assigned me administratively to the ROTC unit at the University of Southern California. Uh, and so now I was faced with the unfortunate prospect of driving into USC once a oh. week. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I went, I did that a couple of weeks in a row and the colonel there uh, said, you know, we've got a satellite unit that meets out at Harvey Mudd College and the Claremont County Consortium of Colleges. Is, yeah. We'll just have you uh, meet with us there. Uh, That's nice. That once or twice. And uh, then he just gave me a, a home assignment. Just, um, I want you to do this. You know, it was, I think it was time management, uh, actually. I want you to do this time management work. And uh, we want to get, since you're from the academy, um, see if they have materials on time management that we might be able to pass along to our ROTC cadets. So uh, I did kind of an independent study for the ROTC and I stayed oh. at home, with him, which was very kind of him to uh, allow me to not drive. Yeah, that is nice. So you had uh, finished your dissertation, turned it in on April fools and and you don't graduate until May something, mid-May, uh -huh. I think, or something. Yep. So that's a month and a half early, and you'd already defended the dissertation at that time? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, well. And so you could have just uh, sat on your couch for like a, and not shaved for like a, a month and a half. <laughs> but yeah, you're so conscientious that you, you said, no, 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 give me something to do. Send me to the Air Force Academy. Send yeah, me, so, send me somewhere. Yeah. I'm glad they worked with you on that instead of making you spend a bunch of time in traffic. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, and you're a, you were a lieutenant colonel at this time. No, I was a major at this point. You're still a major. Okay. So you were and, uh, a senior major. Sounds like. Well, actually, wait. Let me do grade the major. Okay. Yeah. Um. And it was. Uh, I, I was supposed to go back to the Air Force Academy. Uh, and, uh, so in that period, uh, the last month or so, I, I called the folks at the air force Academy in the department mm -hmm. and said, Hey, when am I going to get orders? And, uh, you know, the guy that was handling the personnel matters in the department was kind of hemming and hawing. Oh yeah, you'll, you'll be getting orders here in a little bit. I said, Hey, what's going on? He says, um, you're not coming back to us. Oh no. And I said, why would that be? Because yeah. I've had it's a lot you know, of work. You the, just did. Uh, the expectation, and mm -hmm. um, there was there was a young lady there, roughly my contemporary, that they were trying to uh, push along and, and sponsor in various ways. And so, what they did is uh, they extended her stay there by giving her my slot, um, oh. and uh, so. I ended up getting orders to go fly with the Navy uh, up in Whidbey Island, Washington. And, um, uh, and then ostensibly wow. go back to the Academy after that, although that wasn't certain at that point. So 
Wow. Yeah. So you're like this newly minted PhD and it's kind of an expensive PhD. Was the Air Force picking up the tab for that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think at the time it was, uh, what, $14,000 a year. I, I mean, a semester. I think it was $14,000 a semester at Claremont at that point, um, which is pretty expensive for the time. Yeah. Most of the Air Force program, or most of the programs that they were sending people to were, maybe it was 14000 a year. Most of them were like five to $6,000 a year, um, I think. Anyway, or semester, whatever it was. My, my costs were about double what the normal uh, Air Force Academy-sponsored PhD student was getting at the time. So it's kind of a surprise that I wasn't going back. Yeah. Well, in the in the in the large bureaucracy, apparently those numbers didn't matter at all. <laughs> they just you know, at some point it's it's just sunk cost. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, there's this other thing. So you flew with the Navy out of Whidbey Island. Yes. What uh what was the platform? It was the EA six B Prowler. It was a radar jamming plane. Oh, wow. Was the pilot a Navy pilot or was it just a Navy plane? Um, so it was mixed. What happened was uh, in the drawdown in the 90s, uh, the Air Force got rid of their radar jamming platform, which was the EF-111. Um, and part of the deal for uh, giving up those airplanes um, was it was the same functional system that was in the Navy jets as in the Air Force jet. And so the Navy agreed to pick up that mission across the board uh, and the Air Force augmented the mission with people. So the Navy oh. supplied the infrastructure and the Air Force supplied some additional people. Um, and so we had uh, four squadrons that were designated to support uh, Air Force or joint operations. Uh, and they had usually four Air Force officers in that squadron. Uh, so it was a mix of Navy and Air Force. And that was a three-year tour? Mm-hmm. So that took you to Lieutenant Colonel? It did. I made Lieutenant Colonel my last year there. Okay. And where did you get sent after that? <laughs> I, I ended up going back to the Academy after that. Cool. For three years. That's awesome. So you got finally got able to go back. Yeah. So they really use it. And did you retire at the Academy after that tour? Um, no, I was, I was actually anticipating retiring. I was going to hit 20 years while I was uh, finishing at the Academy. Uh, my last year there, I was uh, working, uh, trying to find a civilian teaching job. Um, and uh, I did so fruitlessly. Um, I think there are any number of reasons why a lot of colleges at that time, uh, I was old, I was military. Uh, there were other attributes that, didn't necessarily uh, draw, you know, these institutions were not drawn to me for. So, uh, so what, one can only imagine what those would be. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think in these days, it's hard to imagine what they might be. Gosh. And it, and it keeps, it, it keeps changing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how people keep up with everything. But um, uh, I got a call from, uh, uh, colonel back in Virginia um, that uh, was working on what the Air Force calls requirements for the F-22. Um, 
And so they were working on a, a modernization plan for a plane that had not even entered service yet. And he invited me to come back and join their team um, because they were looking at, among other things, I was an electronic warfare officer. Uh, and they were looking at uh, developing certain uh, of the capabilities of the F-22 uh, to provide um, abilities to accomplish some electronic warfare uh, as well as reconnaissance uh, uh, tasks just because of the, the sensor suite that it had available to it. So I did that for the last three years in the Air Force. Ah, and so you retired in Virginia? Yep. Okay. Wow. What was the base in Virginia? Uh, Langley Air Force Base. I've heard of that. Yeah, it's down in the Hampton Roads area. Yeah, Langley. Yeah. Um, when you were at at a Whit, Whitby, uh, did you ever interact? Or did you ever have to scramble or interact with any Russian fighters or any Russian um, planes? No. Okay. Well, no, no Russian reconnaissance down there. Um, actually, there were a lot of Russian trawlers in the area because of the submarine bases. Uh, the uh, um, the Trident submarine base out on uh, out in Bremerton, um, yeah. I think yeah. in the Bremerton area, um, and we had uh, both the prowlers at Whidbey Island as well as. Uh, uh, the P3s, so the submarine, anti-submarine P3s, as well as the electronic, the EP3s. I think we yeah. had either one or two squadrons of EP3s there at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, when I think of Whitby Island, I think of the uh, anti-submarine warfare, the the P3 platform. Huh. Yeah, and because you know a lot of it because of that, um, because of the uh, nuclear submarines that we have there. Um, so that's interesting. That's an interesting connection. I, I got my wings on a P3, so I know that, I know that platform. Yeah. Okay. As a, as, as an enlisted air crew, not as a pilot, as okay. an enlisted air crew, we have, we have a enlisted designator uh -huh. that's called air crew wings. So okay. I wore the air crew wings. Did you ever run into uh, Stan Dietrich in the P3 community? No. I was kind of weird, though, because I wasn't, I was a, uh, I was in intelligence. I was okay. trained as a linguist. Uh -huh. um, and so I would be, uh, I would deploy to a squadron and it wouldn't be my uh, permanent duty station it would be oh. just uh someone i was uh, a, gr a group i was flying with for a couple months oh, okay. so um i didn't really know i didn't really get to know a lot of people it very well um that were permanently attached to the okay. squadrons so uh, i was primarily attached my my main duty station was um in hawaii Okay. And so we would be sent, I would be deploy out to the Pacific region, usually for some reason, uh -huh. some, some thing that they wanted us to do. Yeah. Um, now, when you got your PhD and you went back to the Air Force Academy, 
were you able to teach the courses that you wanted to teach? Were you able to (laughs) develop like a class on the presidency or anything like that? Um, I did teach the presidency class one time in my final tour there. Um, so when I went back, uh, I was given the job of the, uh, the director of core courses. Uh, so we had uh, four supervisory positions below the department head and deputy department head. Um, we had comparative government, we had international relations, we had American government, and then we had the core courses. Uh, so we had core courses in international relations and um, uh, American government. I ended up supervising the core courses. So most of my attention was both in teaching and in uh, uh, supervision was tied up with the the, the core courses. Uh, I did teach uh, our national security studies, our national security policy course one year. I taught the presidency one year. Um, I did teach uh, our political theory course one year. Uh, but most of the time I was wrapped up in the core courses. And during that time, uh, they restructured the curriculum and our international relations course uh, wa- became now a, uh, um, an interdisciplinary course, uh, roughly correlating to geopolitics. So it was our department and the geography uh, department or the geography segment of the economics and geography department um, that co-taught, uh, that course. And so, uh, actually I ended up designing that course, um, the, uh, which was, which was quite, quite interesting. Um, and I actually went back there as a civilian in 2013 and taught that course, uh, while another professor was on sabbatical and, um, um, it had morphed somewhat over the years, but really it was still, um, very close to the, to the design that I came up with in what, 2002, 2003, uh, which wow. was gratifying because uh, yeah. I think we put together a pretty substantive course, uh, under the circumstances. That's cool. That's a cool story. So that was, uh, they did bring you back to where you on a list of people to call to fill um, in for no, people. It was just, uh, I got word from somebody who said, yeah, this guy's going on sabbatical. We're trying to fill the position. And so I applied uh, for, I'd ended up getting, I, I knew I was getting laid off uh, from my job. Mm-hmm. And so I applied for uh, this interim position and uh, uh, got the position. So I was there for a semester. Yeah. How do they work that? Is it a G- GS something, or was it just temporary orders coming back on uh, active duty? Yeah, I was, I was, uh, what, a GS-9 or GS-11, I think, something like that. So it was a, it was a civilian, uh, an Air Force civilian position. Wow, that's a lot lower than a lieutenant colonel. Well, yeah. <laughs> is, that what, is that how they view their professors over there? Is, I, thought, I always thought it was like a senior office, or maybe not a, yeah, I guess it's a, Depending but, on what you mean by senior, I guess, but but it correlates quite well with the uh, the role of adjunct professor. Yes, wow. So you're familiar with that. I'm looking back at your uh, your chapter 
Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, the constitutional foundations of the modern presidency. Um, and I thought we would talk a little bit about this chapter, if that's okay. Okay, you bet. Uh, it's an interesting period of, of the presidency, the so-called progressive era. You have two Republican presidents there, uh, Taft and, and Roosevelt. Um, and then you have, of course, the modern... Well, you have the, uh, the first um, explicitly progressive impulse there in um, Roosevelt's reelection attempt. And then Wilson gets in there. <laughs> and um, so you, you go through and you primarily focus on uh, Roosevelt and Taft and how they understood the powers and the grant of authority of the presidency mm -hmm. and the difference there is well there's a difference and there's a similarity the difference is that taft you say um tries to ground his capacious understanding of the president's powers in a legal, explicitly legal framework. Uh -huh. um, so he'll draw from the uh, specific grants of power in Article Two, specific clauses, um, and he always tries to dot his eyes and cross his T's as far as where the president gets his powers from. But Roosevelt doesn't do that. Roosevelt. Um, well, let me just quote from you here. Um, you say that Roosevelt and Taft agree on the need for an expense, expansive executive power. Taft, it turned out, favored a powerful presidency, though one whose powers were informed and limited by law. The primary difference between Roosevelt's and Taft's views is not that between loose construction and strict construction of the Constitution, but rather between an explicitly extra legal and an explicitly legal foundation for the exercise of executive power. How did you get interested in that debate there? <laughs> um, that right out, was that right out of your dissertation? Um, no, but it tracks pretty closely with much of the work I did in my dissertation. Um, so there's a, uh, a considerable history to, to the development of this essay. Um, this, uh, this book, the, the, the second edition of this book, had been in works and in discussion for a number of years. Uh, the original conception uh, for this chapter was to be uh, uh, associated with uh, um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton. Um, so uh, apparently one of the more imaginative things that I ever came up with academically was uh, a fairly close reading of Hamilton's uh, Pacificus essays uh, and a correlation uh, between that with Roosevelt's stewardship the year of the presidency. And some of that, I think, comes out in this essay in, in terms of, I believe there's some discussion of 
um, especially in regard to Taft, even though Taft is legal in his perception, uh, he finds, uh, see if I can find the, uh, the verbiage here. Uh, he uses customary usage and necessary and proper type of language um, to apply to the laws and the inference from laws uh, to justify expansive executive action. Uh, Hamilton, on the other hand, used principles of free government in a specific essay, as well as a reliance on the openness, uh, the opportunity for openness in the uh, ambiguous phrasing of the vesting clause. Um, so Hamilton probably has a much more expansive view of the opportunities for the exercise of presidential power than either Roosevelt or uh, Taft. Um, it might be harder to argue with Roosevelt because Roosevelt really kind of absorbs you know, English monarchical royal prerogative, uh, which is pretty open. Um, but Taft, you know, is, is kind of bound by his legal view. So he's got to find some way, uh, and he uses necessary and proper type of language and customary usage, as well as the inference of the applicability of the law. Um, which I think is a little bit of a tenuous argument. So he limits himself and bounds himself uh, in ways that Roosevelt doesn't. Uh, but they do, uh, I do like the, you know, the phrasing of your question. They, they agree on certain things, they disagree on certain things because uh, they both shared a, a fairly common view of the ends of government. Uh, and the ends of government and the ends of executive power uh, are really very progressive for both of them. Um, so, uh, they disagree on the means to accomplish that, um, but both of them do so in a way that, um, I think Hamilton had the superior argument, the superior constitutional argument that would allow, uh, let's say Taft, uh, if he had followed, uh, Hamilton's reasoning, uh, he would have probably found himself much more limited in terms of the ends of government the ends that the government and the president can pursue, uh, but more consistent in terms of the process, the institutional means of exercising power, uh, as well as the legal uh, limits of the exercise of power. Um, so yes, I think the biggest difference between the two is the extra legal versus the legal methods uh, that they take. But they did share the perception of uh, very progressive uh, um, ends of government, that the government could do pretty much what it wanted to do, uh, informed by the needs of the time. And that seemed to be a very common thread through that progressive area, era, is that conditions have changed so much, industrialization and all of these things that, you know, the Constitution simply doesn't apply anymore, or isn't a useful tool to try to deal with these problems. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges we get to with the idea of the modern presidency is um, we don't really have any executive uh, that has honestly tried. McKinley, it appears, did try to live within the bounds uh, of the Constitution or constitutional ends, you know, informed by more so informed by the principles of the Declaration, uh, the principles of free government that Hamilton identified. Um, than either Roosevelt or Taft. Uh, but we don't have, uh, I don't think, any examples of a president. You may get some pieces of that with Harding 
and Coolidge in the 20s um, uh, kind of somewhat returned to that idea that the government is limited uh, by the principles of Republican government, the principles of free government. Um, but uh, we've never really tried to address yeah. these, these challenges in a constitutional way. The Constitution continues to act even today. Um, the Constitution, the separation of powers, the framework uh, continues to limit government action, um, but it's much more limited than it has been in times past. Um, yeah, the limited part, limiting it is limited, is what yeah. you're saying. The, the, the stewardship issue uh, in uh, TR, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, was interesting that, that I loved how you uh, defined what a steward was because I'm glad and I'm glad you did because I, I don't think I would have caught that the technical sense of what a steward is mm-hmm. and you and the, you said that that was kind of a part of the monarchical way of looking at it were, were you were you referring to TR when you said that right is that right well um, yes let's okay. let's uh, maybe talk about what stewardship is stewardship is a a steward is um a technical term for someone who would execute the will of his master. This is on page 79. Uh That is, he is to follow out the instructions of his master and carry into effect his purposes. In no sense is the steward justified in exercising a will contrary to that of his employer. Though the word does admit of uh, capacity for some flexibility, in determining the means by which to achieve the given ends. The steward, in other words, is responsible uh, to and accountable to his employer for fulfilling his defined duties. It's a very direct and limited responsibility. The nature of this responsibility or accountability and the meaning that Roosevelt invests in it when he speaks of stewardship diverges from the historical understanding of executive magistry, especially as expressed in the United States constitution. And I remember reading that. I'm like, Oh, whoa, you're saying Teddy Roosevelt, this guy I want to like, uh, I like the constitution, but he, he diverges from the constitution. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, And he doesn't try to, he doesn't try to ground when he talks about the constitution, uh, the presidency, he doesn't ground it in specific language of the constitution like Taft does. No, not typically. And when he does, um, it's usually for instrumental purposes, uh, Uh, maybe political purposes in a debate or rhetoric at the time. Okay. Uh, He typically only uses it in an instrumental fashion, uh, so a steward is the, the employer of the steward would be the American people, right? Yeah, and I think here is where you get into the one of the, one of the challenges of how do you, how do you view the people? Because the, the people right. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. are both a constitutional or sovereign people, mm-hmm. but they're also a common people. Uh, mm-hmm. And they don't always act uh, in their sovereign capacity. So, um, uh, and that coming to that understanding is not necessarily a common, 
experience uh, today. Right, right. We understand the people uh, as having two different roles, one a formal constitutional or sovereign role, and one a more common everyday political voter uh, responsibility. Um, so, um, yes, yeah. in the constitutional sense, they are very much the boss of the president. Um, and, but they are also the boss uh, or the employer of the president in the more common understanding as well, in that, in that they vote him or her out in and out of office. Right. Um, so in, in both sides of, of the power of the people, they act on the presidency in terms of providing some sense of guidance or direction uh, as to how a steward ought to act. And I think one of the biggest challenges that comes out in, in Roosevelt's sense of the stewardship of the, of the presidency is he ends up choosing sides. He ends up being partial to uh, particular interests or factions uh, in the populace. Um, mm. So he talks about you know, malefactors of great wealth. Yeah. Um, Right. Um, things like that. And so he's choosing what he calls the common man. Um, but even uh, his view of who is the common man uh, is yep. partial. Yes. So the steward ends up being yeah. uh, not the representative of the people, which he he talks in those terms of being a representative of the people. He kind of follows Governor Morris and some of the founders and following that line of thought to a certain extent, but he's never, he's, he's never really the representative of all the people. You lose the sense of the common good in wow. Roosevelt thought uh, because he chooses a side. There are certain people that I'm going to represent in the American populace at the expense of others who he views uh, as doing bad things. Yes. That's a very insightful thing that you just said. Um, and, and I love the way you, you expanded on it. It was right there in the next paragraph where um, you said from the Hamiltonian perspective, you, that's when, when you say that, I just think of the constitution, <laughs> the, the article two, you know, reading um, But you say the people, the people, uh, both govern and are governed, right? In this respect, the president was to be a steward of the constitutional people, uh, yeah. which is guided by the people through their chosen instrument, the constitution, uh, not the steward of the direct popular will as suggested by Roosevelt. And of course, and then you brought up something that was interesting that I, 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 had heard about, which is a kind of a racial element to some of Roosevelt's language, which is that he thought that um, he kind of just took it for granted that uh, you say on page 82 that, um, uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're appealing directly to the people for a grant of power, just based on popularity, um, well, the check, what would check that power? The check Roosevelt relied on to protect the people of the United States from demagoguery was not an institutional one. And I think you're saying Hamilton would have preferred the institutional check mm -hmm. on, from demagoguery to, to moderate passions 
of the people and to uh, provide some kind of formal constraint that would um, protect the reasonableness of the people from to come out, allow that to come out. And you say that uh, Roosevelt relied on a faith in the race characteristics of Anglo-Saxons and their inherited capacity for self-government. He just trusted that. Um, and later you say, well, you have a, an interesting quote there. Um, I mean, he, he says, um, comparing it with the Indians, comparing the, the settlers with the Indians, he said, the first duty of the backwoodsman who thus conquered the West was to institute civil government. Their efforts to overcome and beat back the Indians went hand in hand with their efforts to introduce law and order in the primitive communities they founded. Um, just as an example, you know, compared to uh, the type of uh, warfare they would experience with the Indians. And I guess what they would have, he maybe concerned concerned him about the savagery of the Indians. Um, and exactly as they relied purely on themselves and withstanding outside foes. So they likewise built up their social life and their first systems of government with reference simply to their special needs and without any outside help. So in other words, he's saying the, it's a, like an innate capacity of the Anglo-Saxons for self-government. But you say on page 83, Roosevelt seemed to reject in doing this and in, in, in founding it on a racial issue the, the moderating element. Roosevelt seemed to reject the founder's reliance on the constitutional and legal structures to regulate, moderate, and filter majority influence on the regime. And in promoting a presidency that represented the particular and discrete interest of what he called the common man, I guess, the common white man, I guess, <laughs> Roosevelt also seemed to reject a larger and more comprehensive public interest. And I thought that was interesting about what you said about the malefactors of great wealth too. That was an interesting thing to add there. Um, in my study of my dissertation, um, I identified or attempted to identify three main strengths. Uh, of his that lead into his formulation and practice of the stewardship, the stewardship the year of the presidency. Uh, one uh, gets to this idea that the kind of the uh, inherited race characteristic, if you will, uh, of the Anglo-Saxons for self-government. Um, it, it's a, uh, a, a kind of a well, like the English Constitution, it's kind of an evolutionary. Uh, developing constitution. It's, it's, develop, it's based on uh, the practice, uh, the habits, uh, the cultural uh, foundations of the people, uh, and, and it uh, translates over time. Uh, and so I think this gets to his, some of his progressivism uh, is um, correlates with that uh, because it's not a fixed constitution. 
Um, there aren't limits. It's kind of what you can get away with at the time. Um, You're saying that's TR's view. Yes. Uh, And it's kind of similar to the way that the English constitution has developed. Uh, And English practice today is, you know, I I don't think there would be much argument that it's, it's very different than it was a hundred or 200 or 500 years ago. Um, It's a constitutional development um, and not a, a particular constitution applied across the years. So there's that, that constitutional Republican element. Uh, there's an element of statesmanship, uh, which he applies. Um, and you know, there's a lot of his thought on statesmanship, I think that is useful and practical. It's, it's much of what makes him attractive. And he is a very attractive personality. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he's, uh, uh, I think he's a great American. Uh, I admire him. I admire his family life. Um, There are certain anomalies there uh, regarding his first marriage, the death of his wife, uh, and his relationships after that with his uh, daughter by that wife. Um, But he was a great family man. Uh, He uh, he was an effective military man in in the the war in Cuba. I just don't think he was great as a president. Uh, and I don't think he was great as a president because uh, he interrupted uh, the constitutional practices of the presidency. Um, and then the third element is his progressivism. So those three strands, the statesmanship, the kind of English sense of constitutionalism or republicanism, uh, developing constitutional or republicanism uh, and the progressivism, um, you know, we've, through all of this uh, together. Um, but again, it, it comes back to the fact that uh, he doesn't feel bound by the Constitution, the limits or the ends of government. He, he doesn't refer back to the uh, Declaration of Independence, again, except as a, an in, instrumentally as a tool to make an argument. Um, and is so that, is that the sense that he's a progressive? For those who might not know what that term means, it's kind of a technical term. Progressive means that you're you're skeptical about um, enumerated powers and a written constitution as the source of authority for the government. Is that what you mean? Skeptical Um, about that? I would say he's more of a progressive in the sense he's not skeptical uh of those things i think he respects the constitution uh as it was formed and founded he just is of the opinion that um societal conditions have changed to the point where those prescriptions no longer really apply and we have to take a new path gotcha very similar to wilson Uh, wilson takes what what would you say the difference is between him and wilson um are they I mean, they ran against each other, so they're not all they're not on the same team. But so what's the difference? I mean, if, if you were to ask what the, the, the election was, what that election was all about uh, between at least between Roosevelt and Wilson, uh, that would have been the 1912 election. Um, um, there was a distinct difference uh, between them on terms of uh, trust. Uh, and honestly, uh, I, I forget the details of that at this yeah. point. Uh, there are different approaches. Uh, 
but well, uh, well Wilson was like an academic, you know, and he was he was kind of the guy that had been a professor and he had been he very theoretical. I think you talk about maybe it was somebody else I was reading that he got his idea. I think it was in your essay about the Germanic influence. Yeah, both of them had Germanic influences. Uh, Roosevelt actually spent a year at Columbia, uh, where he was oh. taught by uh, uh, one of the early uh, German-educated uh, uh, academics uh, that came back to this country. Um, so he got a, at least an introduction to certain things similar to what uh, Wilson uh, got in his education. Um, I, I, I would assert anyway that one of the big differences is they both have a very English flavor to their view of government. Wilson has uh, uh, more of a parliamentary type view um, in the application. Uh, and Roosevelt, I think, leans more toward, um, for want of a better term, you know, royal prerogative. Um, so, um, but both have a sense of constitutional movement, constitutional development, uh, based on the tenor of the times, the challenges of the times. And they don't necessarily look to uh, a constitution like ours as providing effective means uh, to handle those things um, through uh, the institutional means, through the normal operation of the institutions of government. Uh, and I think a certain amount of that is uh, just based on a frustration, an element of frustration of what it would take uh, to work something through Congress. Um, I mean, that takes effort uh, to formulate a proposal, uh, to, to, to get it uh, introduced into Congress somehow, debated, and then maybe it comes out in a form that you don't really like. So I think both Wilson and Roosevelt uh, were willing to take shortcuts uh, to circumvent uh, the normal institutional mechanisms. Uh, and I think we see early, um, uh, early evidences uh, of Congress in certain ways, uh, like we saw in the later you know, FDR years, the later the New Deal years, Congress kind of abdicating its responsibilities. We move into the development of the administrative state uh, I think we see early indications of Congress looking for ways to abdicate their, uh, their responsibility to seriously debate and formulate and, and, uh, and come up with uh, legal policies. Right. Yeah, that, that deliberation. Might little, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but I, I think we see <laughs> some early indications of that which uh, the progressive presidents were very willing to take advantage of, of that opening. Right. So the deliberation from a, from a Hamiltonian perspective, I suppose, for law is supposed to be in Congress, right? Right. Um, you would think that Roosevelt would rely more on the vesting clause, you know, explicitly, to, you know, because it's not, the executive power is not defined in the constitution like it is in Article one, Article one says the legislative power herein granted, right. you know, and it, it's not really defined and limited in, in the same way in Article two. Why do you think that he didn't really rely on the vesting clause for the, 
all the things he wanted to do as president? Um, because I, I think in his, his formulation of the stewardship theory, he didn't need the Constitution. You know, he thought we'd move beyond the Constitution in that sense. And You're so already past I don't that. Think, okay. Yeah, I don't think he ever really looked to the Constitution for that kind of guidance. Huh. So it, Do you I think, think he read the Constitution carefully and reflected on it, or did he just didn't care? I would find it difficult to argue that he had not read the Constitution or read it seriously. Yeah. He, he was an extraordinarily intelligent uh, and informed man about things that were of interest to him. He was a voracious reader. Um, he had a very scientific bent to him, um, although not laboratory type of science. He more of an outdoor naturalist type of science was his orientation. Um, the, uh, so I just don't, I think that he thought we had moved beyond uh, the yeah. era of the applicability of the Constitution. So he really just didn't look to it for uh, guidance. Now, Taft, of course, is his uh, vice president. Uh, for just to review really quick, I believe TR comes to, to presidency after McKinley is shot. Right. Uh, right. And then so uh, TR is vice president. He becomes president. Then he runs for election. Again, I think it was eight, 1901 that he is sworn in after winning 1900. Does that sound right? No, he would, he would have. Uh, uh, or what that? Uh, he was elected, I think, what, 1904? Uh, yeah, okay, to 1908. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So he was. 12. So McKinley won in 1900. Then, then he right. came, became president during that term. Uh, TR did. Taft, he said he wasn't going to run again or something like that. Wait, hold on a sec. Yeah, okay. So he was elected again, or so he was elected the first time, the only time. Um, 1904, right? And yep. then he said he wasn't going to run again. Taft was his vice president, I believe. Was that sound yeah. right? I believe and, so. Much. And Taft ran in 1908 and won. Right. And uh, then TR changed his mind. He said, oh, I want to get back in. I want to be president again. And this is like 1912. And then he came in with his bull moose party progressive right. party and screwed everything up for the Republicans. Uh, yeah. Taft probably would have, I don't know what, have, what would have happened, but then Wilson ended up getting in there for, yeah. for two terms. So um, now Taft, Taft has a chief magistrate understanding. He, de- he rejects the stewardship understanding of it. Right. Yeah. He got, he goes back to, um, he goes back to a much more constitutional view in that sense. Um, yeah. um, but again, I think that his legal, his legal orientation uh, constrains him or. Yes. Uh, well, he later became he chief justice. For, <laughs> so yeah, he, he thinks like a than, lawyer. He does think like yeah. a lawyer, doesn't he? But, you know, to exercise the power of the presidency, 
and expands right. the power of the presidency, he has to find ways to explain the law or the the opportunities available in the law um, that uh, you know really kind of stretch a legal interpretation. I think um, so, okay. so. He's in this box. He's, he wants to. He wants to return to a more legal understanding. But again, he doesn't take advantage of the opportunities that the constitutional language, the powers and duties of the office itself, uh, the vesting clause, uh, you know, like the the argument that Hamilton made, you know, that the the principles of free government are, in some sense, a limitation on um, those actions that a president takes that may take outside of, you know, existing law. Uh, one of the things that um, um, the element of prerogative uh, that that sometimes law simply doesn't address a particular condition. If you go back to John Locke's treatment of that, uh, houses are burning. You you knock down a house uh, as a firebreak. Well, what's your legal authority to, to knock down and create that firebreak? There may be no legal precedent or no legal establishment for that action. But it's a necessitous action to prevent the spread of the fire to the remaining street. Um, So this idea of prerogative, um, but what are the limits of prerogative? Roosevelt doesn't necessarily admit a whole lot in terms terms of that, other than his um, sense of the will of the people. Um, And who's interpreting the will of the people? Well, for Roosevelt, he was. Right. (laughs) Um, So I think Taft paints himself in a corner that he he has to take really imaginative legal uh, formulations to explain how the president gets these expansive powers uh, when the Constitution itself uh, provides some opportunity for that. Um, But once you introduce those ideas, now you also have to introduce the competing institutional prerogatives you know what's what's the prerogative of the courts uh, in response to an executive action what's the prerogative of congress uh, to uh, to respond to a presidential action uh, and so those type of limitations they don't i don't think they are interested in activating so uh, they they really want the president to be able to act on his own without a lot of uh, impeding uh, elements. Though I think Taft would be more amenable to institutional uh, deliberation on his you know, policies than Roosevelt would have. Okay. Yeah, you have a key quote here, I think, uh, page 85. You say, the locus of deliberation shifts to the courts for Taft where the major issues of right and justice are resolved. Whereas in Roosevelt's thought, institutional deliberation was weakened in favor of stimulated and focused public sentiment. Yeah. And that he's like, he's like uh, Wilson, maybe less extreme than Wilson, but, but both of them have that element of trying to interpret uh, public will or be, be the statesman for public will. Uh, Wilson, I think, leans even more into that of becoming the formulator and then the expression of public will. Gotcha. 
Yeah, there's some of that formulation of public will in 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 um, uh, some really key quotes from Wilson. I remember he, I think he actually says that he has to force his will upon the people and and lead them so that they catch up to what he's saying because he's got. But he at the same time he's trying to read the. I guess he's kind of divining it like some kind of prophet where the where the public will should go or something like that right. for Wilson. But here's another key quote for in your Taft section, the boundaries of the remaining political activities of the branches were further constrained, according to Taft, by the court's decision in Marbury versus Madison. I think this is the background for your the earlier quote I mentioned, which made the judicial branch of the government the judicial branch of the government, the branch that would effectively determine the limits of power of the other branches. So it sounds like what you're saying is um, well, let me let me um, finish that paragraph there. It's on 85. That, that quote was 84. The last sentence in that paragraph is law is central to the exercise of legitimate executive power for Taft. And it seems like that he's saying the court is the ultimate one that will decide that while mm -hmm. it's peripheral and at times an impediment for Roosevelt. So Roosevelt well, takes himself to be able to go beyond the law. Like you were saying with prerogative, right? Uh, no. and constrained yeah, only by necessity and public sentiment. Yeah. Um, I, I think that Roosevelt would recognize the authority of the other branches, both Congress and the courts, uh, if they act within their constitutional capacities. Um, but it, uh, in some sense, you know, it's a grudging acceptance. Yeah, I have to adhere to this because that is the formal structure, but it's not something he would look to. He would not look to exercising that formal structure to achieve uh, a, a political or, or administrative or governmental objective. And he would act on his own um, and in the end would, uh, would recognize uh, the exercise of power by the other branches you know, when it came to that. Um, but Taft seems to now change Move, move political questions more in the, into the realm of decision by the courts rather than to have those questions deliberated by a legislature. Um, I'm a big fan of Taft's decision as Chief Justice in Myers versus United States, mm -hmm. which, um, as we know, was uh, a decision that Re reaffirmed the uh, president's right to remove high-level executive officers from their positions just based on the will of the president. Uh, in other words, kind of what's called the unitary theory of the executive, where right. there's one person in charge of the executive branch, not many people. And uh, in that case, I think it was a postmaster of some kind of town in Oregon or something like that, just right. fired. And of course, he sued, thinking that he had some kind of tenure in his job that protected him from being fired. Um, and Taft said, 
no, you can be fired for any reason uh, based mm-hmm. just on even if the president doesn't like your tie or something like that. Uh, so would you say that Roosevelt and Taft had would Roosevelt have written that decision if he was on the Supreme Court? I think did he believe in that same ability to enforce his will and fire people? Well, not everybody because civil service, but, but I'm talking about high level executive officers, like a postmaster. Oh, that, that is a hard question to answer. Uh, I think as president, um, he would think that way that he, he would argue that way that he has that power. Um, there was the case in the teens or no, it was, it would have been when Taft was president. I believe it was a, an official in the forestry service um, that was removed uh, and Taft uh, didn't stand. Uh, I don't remember all the specific details of the case, uh, but Roosevelt was very critical of the way Taft handled that. Uh, uh, I think there was a congressional investigation and Taft allowed that congressional investigation uh, to proceed toward removal of that uh, officer. Um, I, I may have the details mixed up a little bit on that, but Roosevelt was very critical of Taft, uh, in his handling of that. Um, so maybe, uh, uh, maybe Taft was paying attention and remembered that when he became chief justice. Um, but, so yeah, I think that's a hard question Yeah. to answer. Um, Ro- Roosevelt doesn't really strike me as a lawyer kind of a person. No. And that no, maybe that's the difference. Whereas Taft, the, the way you present him, he, he sounds like a lawyer, even the way you're presenting him here. I mean, you yeah. can tell this guy is, is going to go on and teach law. He's going to go yeah. on and teach. He's going to be on the Supreme Court. It, it doesn't surprise you. Um, now, I also think it's interesting that his presidential uh, experience probably influenced his view on the Supreme Court. Maybe that experience that he had as president influenced his ruling in Myers. I think there's a very good chance that that's true. Um, uh, cer- certainly, it's it's hard to discount the experience that he does bring to the table from his time as president. Uh, you know, it's uh, it seems like you are in this article. You are pretty clear that. You're for Hamilton's view of the presidency. Uh, Hamilton's more, uh, page 88 down at the bottom, Hamilton's more forceful reliance on the vesting power as a source of executive powers not specified or not specifically limited in his fourth principle, offered a means to cope with the exigent circumstances that is superior to Taft's crafting of broad legal principles. I think what you're saying there is that when you try to make everything legal beforehand, before anything happens, <laughs> you're, it's going to seem kind of um, fake in a way because, or, or just so practical, it doesn't sound legal. Is that what you're saying? 
um, um, if you try to. I, I think I think Taft bends um, the understanding of law to try to find a way uh, to justify uh, the broad or the expansive application of executive power. Mm-hmm. Um, again, he doesn't look to the Constitution uh, as Hamilton did. You know how how would the Constitution um, support? You know, an expansive uh, exercise of presidential power in a place in, in an uh, arena that was ambiguous, where we didn't have right. the clear direction uh, of uh, of law. Um, you know, the presence to uh, take care that the laws be executed. But what happens when there's no law that he has to execute, but action is called for? And there are any number of situations. A lot of those are in the foreign policy arena uh, where the president has to act absent clear um, governmental guidance. Uh, And so uh, in many cases, those things may be ratified uh, after the fact um, or they may be questioned after the fact. Um, So you look back at uh, some of the wars in the the mid 1800s. Uh, the, the Mexican War. Um, the, that was; those were causes for serious debate in Congress. Did the president exceed his his powers and his authorities in in, in some of the actions he took? Um, so those are the opportunities that the Constitution provides, and those are opportunities that uh, neither Roosevelt nor Taft, more specifically Taft here, because he he looks for uh, limitations, um, uh, but he doesn't. I don't think provide a compelling anyway um, justification for how the president might act uh, in, in a necessitous circumstance. So he tries to put that in legal terms that, that doesn't really um, comfortably uh, support uh, that exercise of presidential authority or power or action. Um, and yet, you know, Hamilton found grounds for that uh, in the Constitution. Um, yeah. And then again, you know, the, the principle of the exercise of free people. Um, so uh, the uh, so Hamilton found things that were consistent with our way of government, with our uh, found you know, with our written Constitution um, that allowed great the exercise of great power by the president, uh, but also provided a means of restraint or constraint uh, or boundaries um, based on the character of our political institutions and the character of our people. Do you think that the court in that N. Ray Nagel case got it right? The N. Ray Nagel case is that 1890 decision, which involved a, I think it was a federal marshal protecting a judge from being assassinated. And I think, uh, I think he was charged with murder or something like that um, because he killed the guy. Yeah. And so the question was, went to the Supreme court, I believe. And the, he wasn't convicted of murder ultimately i think he was but the you had to have some kind of um 
reasoning for for there was no law that allowed a federal marshal to protect a judge i guess that was the issue right so what was the source of his authority but there's honestly i simply don't remember enough details of that case or that ruling um my sense of it is that yes i agree uh, with the end result uh i remember agreeing with it yeah now it seemed like uh now, do you believe that Hamilton's vision of the of the presidency in the Constitution, you know, based on his Pacificus uh, essays, do you believe that that the Constitution itself, under that understanding, gives the president all the power that he needs to de- deal with the new problems that arise in a way that. faithful to that design? I, I think, I think it goes a long way. Um, I, I think there's, there's a, a problem there, an analytical problem there in that uh, I don't think that we've tried that path. Uh, so analytically, it's a thought problem uh, okay. that I think that um, it holds out great promise that we could have handled uh, the new exigent circumstances uh, within uh, a more constitutional frame. You know, I think it's. So you were mentioning about not just the presidency, but Congress is being influenced by the changes as well. Yeah, changes so of understanding. These progressive influences that we see at work in, in, our discussions of executive power are also at work in Congress uh, yeah. and in, in the character of Congress. Right. Okay. So Congress, you know, is affected by these progressive trends. Mm-hmm. Uh, the courts are affected by these progressive trends. Um, yeah. I, I think Congress, we see like with Boss Reed becoming much more partisan. Uh, are we? You know, and so the character of all the institutions, the interrelationships between the institutions is changing. Um, so I think it's very difficult to try to assess um, how, what the prospects for success would be to, to rule in a more historically constitutional fashion, uh, what we habitually seen up to that point or, or seen more of up to that point. Um, my take on it is that yes, the Constitution uh, does provide uh, all the powers, all the authorities among the institutional branches uh, to work in competition or cooperation uh, to address uh, the challenges. Um, but I think that there were there was enough influence uh, among the well elites of the time that yeah. It's time to move on, do something in a different way. Um, and yeah. so we don't have the attempt. I, I think that there are some certain some elements in McKinley's presidency where he did try to uh, uh, adhere to a more uh, uh, a, a more constitutional ethic. Uh, and some of the things he, he, he sent to Congress, I, I think specifically with the war in Cuba, he sent to Congress and Congress 
simply didn't act. Um, and so he was forced to, to take action on his own because of the inaction of Congress to, to act on, according to a power that was indeed theirs. Yeah. Um, so so you, you think that Ken, McKinley is a better model, you think, in terms of the historical constitutional presidency? Uh, is better. Um, I think he, I think in many ways he at least attempted to adhere to the structure of the constitution. Um, I think he was, he seems to have been disappointed uh, by the, the inaction uh, in particular of Congress in some instances um, yeah, that, that put him now in a bind in a position where uh, he had to take action on his own and where he might've been uncomfortable doing so on uh, legitimacy grounds. Gotcha. Well, I think studying the presidency is maybe best done. It, it can be done to a, to a large extent, kind of purely analytically, looking at the words of the Constitution, looking at the arguments about what the words mean. I think it is, it, it is a little difficult to have a full-fledged conversation uh, about it without getting into some specific things that actual presidents did. That's why I like how you brought up the, the Cuban thing. Um, because then you have some kind of, uh, specific event to really reflect on. Take, for example, uh, president Obama's, um, use of drones, for example, mm -hmm. um, that would be, <laughs> uh, an example of something the founders could never have foreseen par excellence. Um, mm -hmm. how do you think that uh, the action on the drones, killing people with drones some from, from far away. I think there might've been a situation with a U.S. citizen. I don't know, but like, what if there was a U.S. citizen that was suspected of being a terrorist? Well, how, how do you think that that, how would you process that from a Hamiltonian perspective? Uh, does the president have that power? The uh, what, what's what what what's the uh, the justification for all that? The, in post nine eleven, it was the uh, um, Congress yeah. did authorize the executive use of force. I, I forget the specific terminology, but that was a broad grant of power that both uh, George Bush and then Obama used. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, first, I would argue that. Something like that uh, ought to be revisited uh, relatively frequently. That is this is this grant of authority still applicable uh, under the current situations? In, in what ways ought it be made more specific uh, or limited, or perhaps even expanded? So that, that's on Congress, right, to do that, right. to take the lead on that. Yeah, uh, that they ought to consider these things and. Uh, that seriously debate those things and, and uh, provide uh, legal uh, guidance to the president. You know, you send legislation uh, to the president, allow him to respond through the, uh, the normal course of institutional deliberation uh, with a veto 
uh, and perhaps an override of a veto. There, there are constitutional mechanisms to accomplish these things. Um, but uh, the fact that Obama is relying on that same grant of power, you know, a decade or so later, um, seems to me, you know, that there are better ways to handle that constitutionally. That, 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 uh, it's not to say that those powers aren't legitimate, uh, but the exigency of the situation has, has waned. You know, you know it, after 9-11, yeah, hey, you know, a broad uh, right. yeah. of power to respond. Uh, but once the situation calms down, hey, let's take a look at what elements there are. And as the character of the war changes. And now we're dealing yeah. with uh, more dispersed uh, bands of terrorists. Um, and so the use of drones. Um, um, are there limits and bounds to what that ought to, how that ought to be administered? Uh, and uh, so I do, I do think that there are um, legitimate opportunities for, for us to have, you know, institutional debates about these things. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think that we've grown so habituated to Congress, not really deliberating the substance of things, but turning the right. substance, they, they, they legislate in general fashion and turn the substance of the deliberations and the ruling and how the administration is to occur of all sorts of things over to administrative agencies. So the executive in essence, yeah. Um, or the court or the court litigated. Yeah. And like uh, they did with Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> right. I mean, that went, that ended so, up in the courts. Uh, I, I think the constitution provides uh, great opportunities for us to, to govern responsibly um, and, and under very challenging circumstances. Um, and I think that Hamilton provides that, that that window to take you know immediate or early actions uh that are necessitous um but then that ought to kick in uh, the normal operation of government how are we to proceed from here uh and we ought to have serious debates about that and congress needs to be responsible uh for that and we we see a great uh deference in congress you know they don't want to yeah. be unpopular by debating contentious issues I, I really don't understand how congressmen and women even get the work done there i don't get it because uh, you know like take a take a congressman from california for example they have to fly all the way out there <laughs> they have to they're so far from their district they have to have two residences they 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 have these huge bills that come up that, that they don't read. Yeah. They can't, they can't, yeah. nobody can read that. I don't even think their staff can re really read it. They have this huge bureaucracy that is supposedly accountable to them. <laughs> but I think it's sometimes the other way around where the, the bureaucracy is permanent and yeah. they have all sorts of staff and resources to and an institutional memory. So if you're a new congressman, you just got there you don't even know how big the government is. Um, you have no, no context, no, no capacity to see what a normal budget would be, you know, or no, what a normal, 
what, what's business as usual? And, um, and then you're running for re-election right away and you got to raise money. And I, I don't understand how Congress is supposed to, to do this. I agree with you that Congress is kind of abdicating its historic role, but I, I, I just wonder to what extent that's possible to, for uh, what it would seem like it would be superhuman to try to do that. But uh, I was going to ask you, what did you think about the second uh, Iraq war going back in? I mean, you were there at the beginning when the first Gulf war, what did you think about the, the evasion of Iraq? Um, I mean, you had to have some kind of opinion on it. I mean, of course you maybe couldn't express your opinion as an officer. But. <laughs> I, I would have to say I, I'm in general supportive of it. Okay. Um, I, I think the, uh, the, the previous 10 years, we had created an untenable situation. Um, and there needed to be some resolution. We either needed to walk away and wash our hands of it, or we needed to pursue some kind of uh, uh, end to our in involvement uh, with Iraq. And there are no shortage of uh, uh, provocations uh, that yeah. Saddam Hussein engaged in during the, the years or so. Uh, You're talking so about the no-fly area? I, I don't have a problem. Yeah, and I actually did, did some flying in the no-fly areas. and um, You were enforcing you know, just, We were... Yeah, I, I flew over northern Iraq in one. Uh, the uh, you know it's just we were bleeding ourselves by a thousand cuts uh, and without achieving resolution. So uh, I I don't have a problem with that. I, I think that there are grounds for debate on the uh, the causes uh, of going in, the justifications for going in. Right. Um, but I would say I'm generally in favor of what we did there. Um, I think we got bogged down and confused uh, following that uh, intervention. Mm -hmm. How did you feel when so, Obama wanted to again, pull troops out? Um, I can understand the impulse to pull troops out. Uh, again, uh, we had allowed ourselves to get into a situation that was uh, really long-term kind of dragging on, uh, in some senses untenable, um, but we'd also achieved uh, some sense of stabilization. Um, mm -hmm. so I think having a status of forces agreement continue the opportunity to preclude some of the uh, uh, fairly disastrous actions we've seen there with the, the growth of ISIS uh, and their activities. Um, so um, I, I think that was, well, as many of his decisions were, were really kind of ill-founded. Um, sounds good, but in the, uh, in the execution, well, it's similar to our recent right, poll right. Afghanistan. It was really poorly executed. I can't argue with right. the desire to extract ourselves in, in right. meaningful substantive ways from uh, the heavy involvement in Af Afghanistan without simply turning things back over to the Taliban. Yeah. Did you I believe, did you believe that there were uh, weapons of mass destruction there? 
What's that? Did you believe that there were weapons of mass destruction there in Iraq in 2003? Uh, I do. Okay. What happened to, you, to them, do you think? <sighs> Stolen? Um, but I think there's a very good chance that uh, uh, something along the lines of what we saw in, in the Iraq war, in the first Gulf War, um, Iraq engaged in a policy of trying to preserve assets by sending them to Iran. Uh, not that they're ever going to get those assets back, planes, things like that. Yeah. Um, I think there might have been some uh, disbursement uh, or change, perhaps to Syria. Um, the um, that, that I a, think there's that Iraq did. What's that? You mean that Iraq gave that stuff to Iran? Is that what you were saying? Uh, uh, possibly. I, I would think more likely Syria. Okay. Um, there are, there's a significant amount of evidence uh, that has come out in the intervening time that um, there were, they, I mean, they found weapons dumps of uh, uh, certain of those types of weapons. Uh, most of them of a more primitive nature than what we thought we were looking for what we thought existed. Um, so the arguments that Iraq not engaged in that activity really, I don't think, hold a lot of water. Um, uh, were they as advanced as the arguments we made? Uh, perhaps they weren't. Um, but uh, the argument that we made may not have been uh, as accurate as we thought at the time. Gotcha. But the fact, I, I think the fact is pretty clear that Iraq was engaged in that activity. It would be odd for them to give it to the Iranians, though, right? Because they were at war with them for so long. Right. Uh, yeah. And like I said, I, I would tend to think that it would probably move more in the direction of Syria uh, okay. than uh, Iran. But my gosh, I, I, It's hard to project uh, something like that. Right. I, I would be surprised. Um, there were certainly enough elements in Iraq that had close contacts with Iran that something like that could have happened. Gotcha. Per, perhaps without the cognizance necessarily of Hussein himself. I understand. Um, okay, I got you. Yeah. So you're saying that with Bush, you didn't, you didn't believe he was lying about it, or. No, I don't believe he was lying. Okay. Um, Interesting. I, our intelligence might have been faulty. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think he was lying. I don't think the administration was lying. Uh, I think there are people that, I, <laughs> my assessment would be the people, the liars are the ones that are making the, uh, the other assertion um, uh, that, it, that it was all groundless. Right. Yeah. Ironically. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's one more question I want to ask you. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier in this interview that, that Christopher Flannery had been your professor as an undergrad. Yes. Right. What was he like as a professor? Uh, I thought he was quite good. Um, the, uh, so I took American government and, uh, American foreign policy, 
um, and a couple other courses with him. Uh, I found him to be quite thoughtful. He was. Um, he certainly has a pleasant voice on his podcast, yeah. uh, The American Story. He, he, you know, he, he brought to the school um, the perspective of Harry Jaffa and Harold Root, um, which was uh, very much counter to what I'd had typically. What I had was a standard boilerplate political science and international relations education at that point. Uh, and he introduced questions um, that, uh, that challenged kind of the conventional wisdom, uh, which I found to be very refreshing uh, and very helpful uh, in, in the development of, you know, what I hope is an inquiring mind. Can you give an example of that so we can wrap our minds around it? Uh, <laughs> in my, uh, what would be, what would be the boilerplate and then what would be the Jaffa, Jaffa Flannery alternative? Um, you know, the previous year, uh, I had, uh, I, I was taking an American foreign policy course, uh, with Chris and the previous year I'd written a paper uh, on the Panama canal, which was a contentious issue at the time. And, uh, so uh, we had a brief debate in class over that. And um, uh, he said, you know what, let's hold this debate. He says, why don't, you, why, don't, why don't you bring your argument next week to class and you'll present your argument uh, <laughs> and I will respond. Uh, and so I did. And, you know, mine was, you know, kind of a standard boilerplate, you know, it's kind of colonialism and uh, <laughs> really shouldn't be down there. Uh, and he came back with an argument uh, of um, American interest. Uh, as I recall, that was the primary element that, you know, that we had built that canal, uh, that we had done so legitimately, uh, that, that, um, that we had a legitimate interest in maintaining uh, our influence there um and it was it was a very thoughtful argument uh and it was it was uh um that there are two sides to this argument there's not just one side uh and and it was very it was it was eye-opening to me because they were questions that i had not even entertained when i'd written this paper uh it was what they were questions that were not asked in the resources that i gathered for my paper uh but they, those resources were available. I simply hadn't found them or gone to the effort to find them. Um, so uh, it was, it was a very much an academic exercise. It, it was yeah. an exercise in investigation uh, of an issue and a problem, uh, looking for as much data as you could find to try to facilitate uh, a good, uh, and as near comprehensive as possible uh, assessment of the situation. Wow. That's a high compliment. In other words, Chris Flannery educated you. <laughs> he pushed you. Yes, he did. He, he pushed you to see the fuller picture of the uh -huh. topic you were talking about to provide balance. Yes. For what was otherwise kind of a biased, just as, yep. just based on assumption. 
he he was he was a profound influence on my own academic uh, development, uh, and you know which led to people like Jaffa and Rude uh, and uh, Joe Bassett uh, and and people I found at Claremont. Uh, Claire, the Claremont community uh, has a, a very robust uh, uh, team of very honest and uh, accomplished scholars if you choose to avail yourself of them. Mm-hmm. Now, the Claremont community has standard boilerplate conventional wisdom scholars as well yep. uh, that you can, you can get. Here's how you think. Uh, and, you know, you'll pass my course. Mm-hmm. I will give you an example um, from my own Ph.D. years. I was in a course. It was a Congress course. Um, uh, with one of the other professors there. And um, we were having a discussion. Of, they were doing student presentations that night. Um, and you know, I'm just sitting there listening to this. And for some reason, the professor brings up legal aid. One of her students had a wife that worked for legal aid in the town of Glendale. Was this the first time you were there or the second time as on as... there? Okay. Now, this is in my PhD program. Gotcha. And so she's talking about you know, her student and his wife and some of the stuff they're involved in and all this. And just completely out of the blue, she turns to me and says, well, Lance, you probably hate legal aid. And I thought, oh, great. Um, this is nice for a class. And I said, you know, honestly, legal aid is not something I even pay attention to. So I, I, I don't know. Um, and so she just kept poking, prodding the finger. No, you, you probably hate him. And, and so kept prodding, prodding, prodding. And, uh, and finally, it was like she wasn't going to stop it, or apparently going to stop. And so I said, you know, honestly, I simply don't know that much about legal aid. I know certain things about them, but it's all really kind of popular stuff. I see some things in the news, but I'd be willing to hate them. And uh, (laughs) the entire class just has this sharp intake of breath. And it's like, oh my gosh, listen to what (laughs) you just said. Um, But, you know, it was that, you know, this idea that any opposition whatsoever to the activities of legal aid is, is simply unjust on the face of it, uh, right. which was the whole tenor of, and the entire class, for, well, most of the class, there might've been one or two people in there that might've shared opinions similar to mine, but it was like, it, it was groupthink. And it's like, of course, legal aid is good. And it's like, well, how many of you ever looked at legal aid? How many of you have looked at what they do? Where, where right. do they get money? things like that. Right. And right. so um, the, the folks that are there available to people are really, really good and refreshing if you're open to that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and I think in the, the broader Claremont community, meaning the six colleges that are there, I think that um, the balancing of, People like what you're talking about with Chris Flannery and Jaffa and Bissett, people like that, I think they are actually a severe minority 
of that whole community. Um, I don't think there's anybody like that at Scripps, for example, or, yeah. or at Pitzer. But they um, punch above their weight. But yes, there's enough uh, people that have been there that balance it out at, at CGU and Claremont McKenna that, that uh, it does, I think, a great service to what you're saying is looking at the fuller picture and, and, yeah. and thinking more fully about something, de- developing the thought. Don't just stop at what it prima facie looks like or what you think you're supposed to say. Yeah. Well, uh, we really appreciate the time you've spent with us and the energy uh, getting back into this material and talking about your extraordinary, in, extraordinarily interesting Air Force career, at least from my perspective, uh, both academic, uh, pretty high level in the weeds academic and teaching, uh, and then also uh, flying, uh, doing all the things you did in the air and on <laughs> in the hangar. <laughs> so thank you so much for your service. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, I've had the opportunity to have really quite enjoyable and rich and fulfilling life in many ways. And uh, this is, we've talked about part of that. So thank mm-hmm. you for the invitation. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. Thank you, Lieutenant Colonel. Lance Robinson, PhD. Thanks.